Stefan from Mississauga. Are you on the line today? I'm very nervous to be talking to myself. <laughs> what would you like to ask the host today, Stefan? Oh, why you don't use more deodorant? You must tell me. I mean, I'm the one who has to live with you. Come on, sl- slap a little on. That's what I want to ask the host, actually. Why he doesn't use more deodorant? Actually, I think that's what your watering eyes <laughs> want to want to ask the host. Good morning, everybody. It's the first of the month. It's Christmas month. And I believe we will be injecting my rendition of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer into the central cortex and brain of everybody who doesn't give me Christmas donations this month. What do you think? Shall I start? <gasps> oh, and it's Duke Nukem doing Rudolph the Reindeer. <laughs> I'll donate for Rudolph that. Rudolph the Reindeer was a very happy Glock. Anyway, so uh, yeah, don't forget. Wait, Santa doesn't exist, and he's kind of immoral. Hang on, let me let me come up with another one. The anti-Santa of philosophy um, in your thoughts, if not your prayers, this uh, holiday season. Uh, and if you would like to send donations, fdrurl.com uh, and uh, forward slash donate, fdrurl.com forward slash donate. Hugely appreciated. Also not averse to... Um, uh, bitcoins, but um, they have to be in whole prime numbers. Uh, that's very important. <laughs> that's very important. And that number cannot be below, say, 50. Didn't Fee just get a million dollars worth of bitcoins? Yes, they did. Fee just got a million. Oh, hey, good for them. You know, there's nothing happier that a donation-based show likes than hearing that another show that's not donation-based got a million dollars. That just gets you out of bed with a spring in your step and a snarl on your face. <laughs> you know, good for them. Good for them. I like for you a lot. So, um, yeah, if you'd like to help out, fdrurl.com forward slash donate. I would really appreciate it. I will be hosting the Peter Schiff Show 10th, 11th, and 12th of uh, December. So please feel free to call in and ask me insanely complicated questions about investing in the economy. <laughs> At which point, I would just try and smile and look pretty. So, um yeah, uh, that's that's about all that's going on. Um, no, do I sound prepared? Do I sound professional? <laughs> sound the same as you usually do. Wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess I'll just take that as very professional. Um, the movie Argo was pretty good. Let's go to the first caller. Heading <laughs> <laughs> Scott via phone. <laughs> phone. Dear God. <laughs> Scott, how is nineteen eighty four? Hello, Scott. Hey, Scott. You are live and on the air. You seem like you're in a good mood today. I am in a good mood today. I am breathing. Uh, the primary business plan of FDR for 2013, Don't Die, has been achieved, so things are good. <laughs> yeah, every day above ground is a good day, I agree. I hear you. Now, what I was calling you about, or what I had you call me about, was that video you put out there, uh, excuse my outrage, but I think it's justified. And I do excuse your outrage because uh, I'm also very outraged by the uh, basically Zionist-based uh, uh, push for war that we see going on even today in Iran. Now, help me sort of help me understand this because I get a fair number of comments here and there about this uh, the Zionist thing. And I wonder if you could just explain that to me uh, a little bit. Right. Well, I did send out a video. It's actually a talk given by 
reverend in the uh, Church of England explaining the whole history of it and everything, but essentially what it is is a group of heretics that uh, are very prominent in the evangelical uh, churches in America today. Uh, the whole thing started basically in the 1850s. The Great Awakening was mainly, you know, that revival they talk about in the U.S. during that time was mainly a Zionist uh, movement gaining ground. And, of course, you know, we had the Civil War shortly thereafter. Basically, their whole premise is to um, reinterpret the Old Testament prophecies regarding the return to Israel from exile, uh, which were all about, you know, when the Jews were in Babylon and returning home, which they did, uh, those prophecies being fulfilled and so forth. Well, these Zionists um, have taken that to mean that, you know, that was the justification for the creation of the state of Israel, rebuilding the temple, and, and so on and so forth is their goal. And I've I've heard some of these arguments. So so let me just sort of understand. So there is a biblical prophecy that says that Jesus can't return until the Jews are back in Israel. Is that right? That's more or less. Yeah, that's more or less the Kool Aid that they're drinking. Um, they're. Let me say this. I mean, the Schofield Reference Bible, which became like the most popular Bible in the states uh, around the turn of the century, was actually written by a convicted con man in England, uh, was published there, and it had all these annotations on the side of the pages, and this is basically what they've been using to teach uh, this Christian Zionism ever since. Uh, the biggest uh, seminary is in Texas where they where they push this stuff, and that's the biggest evangelical uh, pastor uh, training ground. So it's it's basically a poisonous doctrine that uh, got introduced um, to po- you know to get public support for this policy. Um, it, you know the, the Zionist Jews and Zionist Christians have been working hand in hand uh, in this holy war, you know, for the past ten, ten plus years now. Uh, they're the ones that are pushing it. The National Council on Churches, on the other hand, has been firmly opposed to it, as they were to Vietnam. Uh, as they are now. Sorry, which church has been? The, the National Council on Churches, which is uh, basically your mainline denominations like the, Pro, um, the Lutherans, you know, the Methodists. Okay, now, so so if you know something about that, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I certainly believe that the people who believe in these prophecies and so on, it is very serious to them. And, and one of the reasons why this prophecy and stuff, it, it's hard to criticize or it's hard to for people to, to hear counter-arguments is that if you really are religiously inclined to that degree, then what happens is you believe all these prophecies, so you know there's no, no reason to criticize, criticize them. If you're not in that world, like if you're kind of secular or kind of like a Sunday Christian or a Sunday or I guess a... <laughs> A, 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 a sort of more of a secular Jew or whatever, then what happens is you kind of don't even know all this stuff because it's just not that big a deal to you and you can't quite believe that people take it that seriously. I mean, I've heard arguments, I don't know if they're true or not, that one of the reasons why 
uh, the war in Iran occurred, uh, Iraq occurred, it's because of uh, biblical prophecies and so on. And if you're not in that world, then it just all seems like, well, that can't be it. I mean, there's got to be some base political motivation. Like the reason that America is pro-Israel is not because of prophecies, uh, but because, you know, everybody wants to court the Jews in politics, right, and control a lot of the media and so on, donations, they have a lot of wealth and so on, right? So, but I, I, I genuinely do believe that uh, people will make really foundational decisions in their life based upon what they accept as, as prophecy. And uh, I, I do think it colors a huge amount of what goes on in American policy. Uh, because otherwise, you have to make the argument that everybody cynically uses religion uh, as a means of controlling the masses or getting donations and so on. I don't believe that's true. I think obviously there's some people who do that. Right. There's an old statement from – sorry, there's an old statement from – I think it was – I can't remember if it was Seneca. Some old – I think it was a Greek, a Greek or Roman philosopher who said religion is true to the masses, uh, false to the wise, and useful to the rulers. And I, I think that a lot of people really, really do believe in these biblical prophecies. They really, really believe that – the end of the world is imminent. I mean, it's like 40 or 50% of the American population believe that the world is not going to last for another 50 years. And I don't think that those beliefs are meaningless. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, these are, these are the same people that believe in the rapture. Okay, I mean, they basically believe yeah. all this has to take place so they can be raptured. The rest of us will be stuck here to, you know, suffer. <laughs> so yeah, and, and, and if you're not in that world... Like if you're in that world, there's, there's nothing to criticize. If you're not in that world, it seems vaguely unbelievable that people would actually live their lives this way. But people do. I mean it's not just the Muslims and someone who, who really, really believe their theological worldview. I mean there's lots of Christians who do it as well. So my question around this church, right? So does this church um, that you were talking about at this council, do they accept uh, the punishments from God? Do they accept uh, that uh, you know God is going to punish people after death? Well, to some extent, yes, but what I should say is that uh, mainly these are more what you would call progressive or leftist-type churches that are involved in this thing. I'm a member, or was a member of uh, an ELCA church, used to be American Lutheran Church, was kind of center of the road. Um, you know, now it's very far left. It's being run by the Chicago Communists. They're part of the National Council on Churches. Uh, they're all about social justice. Now they're talking like there's no hell, there's no right, there's no wrong. It's actually kind of lining up a bit more with uh, your philosophy in some ways. I mean, I'm basically an anarchist myself, and I understand the uh, apprehension and the uh, distrust of you know all institutions. But uh, you know, I think there is some some good that comes out of uh, teaching the, the faith the way it was written, you know, 2,000 years ago, as you mentioned in your video, um, you know, there's a moral code there that, you know, honestly, without that morality, I'm sure we both could agree there can't be any kind of uh, free society. Well, okay, so, so, but this is what, this is what my outrage is and, and was, which is that the people who are, who are religious say that, well, you see, we have this moral code. We have, the, we have the Ten Commandments, and boy, you know, without those Ten Commandments, without the bribe of heaven and the threat of hell, we're just not going to have a moral society. Like you atheists are just like amoral or immoral or, you know, you have no moral compass whatsoever. 
And when I was a, a kid, I mean, that's how what I was taught. You know, we've got these these Ten Commandments. And, you know, one of the big important ones is thou shalt not kill. Another big important one is thou shalt not steal. So by that logic, the uh, there should be no Christian who joins an army in a non-defensive war. Like where ships aren't sailing up to your harbor kind of thing, right? Right. And I agree with you there. Yeah, but, but there, there's none of that. I mean, there's none of that. I mean, everybody everybody understands that America is not threatened in by invasion from any foreign power. Friendly neighbors to the north and south, massive oceans to the east and west. If America pursued a non-interventionist foreign policy, which requires a military presence to begin with, if America pursued a non-interventionist foreign policy, it would be about as threatened as Iceland by uh, Muslims or, or overseas people or whatever, right? And so, well, that's what the National Council on Churches advocates: is that non-interventionist. Non-interventionist. Okay, so then um, the people who join that's, the military. By the way, there's, there's people, who, hang on, people who join the military. Let me finish. People who join the military uh-huh. at the moment are a breaking. We could argue the most foundational of the Ten Commandments: "Thou shalt not." I think technically it's "Thou shalt not murder." But anyway, let's just take the common understanding, thou shalt not kill. Uh-huh. And so they will all uh, be damned to hell for eternity. And yet I don't see any priests uh, fire and brimstoning saying people who are in the military, particularly people over, overseas in the military, are uh, uh, violating the most foundational of God, God's commandments. It is a mortal sin. Uh, it cannot be redeemed, and they're going to burn in hell forever. And I've just – I've never seen anything like that. And that sort of makes me wonder, which is – and also, you know, thou shalt not steal means, well, the government has to stop collecting taxes. Well, clearly that's oh, – oh, render under Caesar that, which is – yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so what it means to me is that they just – they don't have a moral code. They don't have a moral basis. Why do the priests not thunder against the military? Because religion and militarism kind of go hand in hand. Where do most American soldiers come from? They come from the south. Where is there the greatest religious presence? It's in the South. So they just don't want to harm their market. They just don't want to stand in front of their congregation and tell their congregation things that the congregation doesn't want to hear. That's true. That's fine. The okay, that's fine. Gospel. Then they're just, they're just marketers, and that's fine. But then don't tell me you've got this moral code. I mean, that's just ridiculous. You're just telling people what they want to hear. But sorry, go ahead. you got to remember, there's a lot of Christians that don't even go to a church. But yes, it was a Southern Baptist and the evangelicals of uh, the Zionist bent that uh, mainly were the ones behind in backing this war. There's a pretty cool uh, website you can look at about this for more information. It's called uh, beliefnet.com. Uh, it talks about faith group positions on the war with Iraq, um, which would explain, like I was saying, there's about 45 million members in the National Council of Churches, and even they got a lot of flack for coming out against the Vietnam War. When they did, because like you said, a lot of the congregants weren't uh, weren't with that. They wanted to kill. They wanted to, uh, you know, fight communism and all this other stuff that they, you know, was put into their heads by the TV and the media and so forth. And on that well, point, no, I would no, say, no, no, no. See, see, you're blaming the TV and the media, and of course that's a that's a factor. But they have thou shalt not kill. That should be – that's all they need. I mean there's, there's lots of stuff in the TV and the media that Christians explicitly reject, 
right? The moral majority was very much against uh, pornography and smut in the cinema and so on, right? So there's lots in the mainstream media. Secular humanism is, is violently attacked by – sorry, I shouldn't say violently. It's strongly attacked by a lot of religious folks. So they have – I mean if, if the word of God, the commandment of the omnipotent, all-powerful, all-good God can be overturned by a series of commercials and Gossip Girl, then I don't really think you have a good basis for morality there. If Christians wouldn't go to war, there would be no war in the West, right? If Christians just said, hey, uh, you know that thou shalt not kill, uh, that's pretty clear. There would be no war. I mean, the Germans were very religious when Hitler was around, and they all just went stampeding off into Czechoslovakia and Austria and, and Poland and France and you name it. I mean, good heavens, the, the Italians were, were Catholics, <laughs> some of the most religious people in all of Christendom. And they just went charging off into Ethiopia and, and they strafed natives who were throwing spears at them from goddamn airplanes. Well, and the Pope any, collaborated any with the Nazis and the Pope forgave and didn't even have anything to forgive with these people. So my question is, if God says thou shalt not kill, and if you're a Christian who accepts the Ten Commandments, why is there war? Why is there non-defensive war? Well, well, there's... And then we look, we, look across, we look across the world and we say, well, see, those Muslims, boy, they're really violent, aren't they? They take their religion so seriously, they're willing to do really violent things. It's like, yes... And that's not specific see, to that. Go ahead. See, that's the that's the argument I hear a lot of times from from atheists or agnostics. Is basically whatever's wrong in the world, we can blame God for it. We can point the finger at Him and say, well, because you know this, this, and the other is happening. Uh, there is no God. No, 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 no. Hang on, hang on. Atheists can't point the finger at God. That's like me saying to my wife, uh, "It was the leprechaun who didn't do the dishes." <laughs> Right. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Like uh, they use that as an as a proof of of no God being around in the first place, or if he is, he's not even you know he doesn't care that kind of thing. Well, uh, yeah. See, but I don't I don't care about any of that. I, I'm look. Hang on. I'm I'm willing to accept. I mean, if we accept for the sake of the argument that God is real, that God is all powerful, that God is all good, and the Ten Commandments are what He handed to Moses, uh, then um, if we accept all of that, then there should be no seven hundred and 20 U.S. military bases overseas, right? I mean, then they should have – I mean, look, atheists are like, what, 3 or three or 2 or 3 percent of the U.S. population? Pretty fucking hard to wage a war with 2 or 3 percent of the population. Even if we assume that all atheists are just immoral bastards who will kill for pay, which they're not, but if we assume that they are, right, then, then the Christians are all like, hey, you, war? Iraq? No, they're not threatening us. Uh, so we got a thou shalt not kill, sorry, can't do it, right? Because we care about our eternal souls. And my preacher is telling me, thou shalt not kill is very clear. It's the most foundational of God's commandments. So no, we cannot go uh, and uh, uh, and invade uh, another country. Um, so they'd have to go to war with all the atheists, and uh, they would have a tough time with uh, atheists. You know, I mean, boy, you think, you think that an atheist is going to be a good Marine? <laughs> when you say jump, I say how high? And he's like, uh, <laughs> no, of course women. not, because this is that somebody that's going to question authority. authority. They're, they're not very good at bowing towards irrational authority. Christians, yeah, you're a little closer to that paradigm. So it's kind of tough to wage a war with atheists. So even if we, even if we accept all of the premises of Christianity or, or other religions, 
Well, you've got a thou shalt not kill, and you've got an aggressive and invasive foreign policy. I mean, if if 95% of, of Americans are – hang on. If 95% of Americans are religious, uh, that means – and probably higher, I would say, that almost 100% of people in the armed services are religious. Well, that means 95% of people in the CIA are religious. 95% of people running the Fed are religious, right? Thou shalt not lie. <laughs> Fed won't even tell you how much goddamn money they're printing, right? 95% of the people in the FBI are religious. 95% of the prison guards are religious. 95% of the people prosecuting the war on drugs are religious. I, I wouldn't say it's 95%. That's religious. I mean, just because five percent are atheists, there's a lot of other people that are not. Yeah. Okay. Eighty-five percent. Fine. <laughs> I think you may be quibbling about the least important part of what I'm saying, but go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I understand what you're saying, and what I'm trying to say to you is that there, even in the Christian religion, there is a big, um, there's a big division. There's a war, if you will, of words between the Zionists, those people that are in that camp that allowed all this crap to go on and those that are against it, you know, like the National Council of Churches, there's about 45 million members. There's about, uh, you know, roughly 50 million evangelicals. But you mentioned the Pope in the video and you brought him up again in this uh, discussion today we're having, and he did come out very strongly against the war. I remember that was, you know, you're being tenant yes, in that video. Yes, you but he about. didn't excommunicate. All right. Well, how's he going to excommunicate uh, millions of people? He'd have to do it one by one. That's how they would do it, you know, name by name. So he'd have to sit down. He'd have to have well, a huge he's fine the network. Pope, man. He's the Pope. Don't tell me he's bound by any laws. I mean, he's the direct pipeline of God. If God says to the Pope, I can excommunicate en masse, he can excommunicate en masse. I mean, don't tell me the Pope is limited by, by laws. He's omnipotent. So that's, that's why I'm a Lutheran and not a Catholic, because I don't believe in the infallibility of the Pope and, you know, and so on and so forth. I, that, that's a little bit ludicrous. I'm a free hanger myself, you know, um, and I've been out on the street against the wars many times, amongst other things, protesting. So it's not like, uh, you know, all I'm saying is don't lump us all in, paint us all with the same brush. Uh, because there is a lot of diversity uh, within Christianity. And I would argue as well that, uh, you know, there's a lot of people out there calling themselves Christians whose true religion is, you know, the state. And, you know, that's their faith. And whatever the state tells them, you know, is, is the word of God. That certainly is true for atheists as well. As somebody said in the chat room, uh, I know so many atheists, the majority of those I've met would fall on the sword for the state in a heartbeat. <laughs> well, see, if people would fall on the sword for the state, that would be okay. The problem is they keep pushing other people under the <laughs> sword of the state. And, one <laughs> would other, so. and he said uh, – somebody wrote uh, – said, look at the Soviet soldiers under communism. Well, um, the problem with Soviet soldiers under communism, which was pick up this gun or we'll shoot you in the head and then we'll kill your whole family. Right. So it's a little, uh, you know, the Christians who have a choice to join the military or not can't really be compared to Soviet soldiers under communism. So I don't imagine that. Mm -hmm. Well, listen, I got to move on to the next caller. But uh, thank you so much for your call. Uh, very, very interesting and important. And certainly, look, I know some Christians who are far better people than most of the atheists I know, far better people. And so I'm not saying that, you know, all Christians are bad and all atheists are good. Good heavens. <laughs> Lenin was an atheist. <laughs> Stalin was an atheist. Uh, I mean, they were uh, monstrous human beings. Atheism doesn't tell you much about anything. 
uh, other than, you know, I don't believe in leprechauns. What are my political views? Well, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I know that I know that you're not going to be voting for leprechauns. That's all I know. <laughs> but my argument is that the the religious approach to ethics has not at all solved the problem of morality any more than it solves the problem of physics, any more than the Pope damning free trade solves the problem of poverty. Uh, it's, it's an illusion of an answer. And if people are naturally good, I think that in some ways religion can help enhance that. But if people uh, – most people are naturally amoral and crowd followers. Uh, and we simply know that because whenever some, someone new comes in power, people are just like, hey, there's the new guy. <laughs> Meet the new boss, right? Same as the old boss. And so I just say that we, de- we haven't solved the problem. We need to keep uh, looking. So um, uh, until Christians really start living by thou shalt not kill, I'm not going to take the moral foundation of religion or the moral argument for religion uh, with, any, with any seriousness. But thank you again. Great call. I appreciate that. And thank you, of course, for all the anti-work, anti-war work that you do. I appreciate it. And Mike, who do we have next? You are. All right, Ross, you're up next. Go ahead, Ross. Ah, oh, thank you, Mike. Nice stuff. Hello. Long-time caller, first-time listener. Oh, wait. I might have that backwards. <laughs> don't. I'm still working on my coffee, so <laughs> don't screw things up that way. I'm like, yeah, good. Me talk big head for a long time. <laughs> I know. So, uh, I'm going to do what everybody always does, and thank you for everything that you do. Your work is fantastic, and it's helped me out so much in my life and everything that I do, and I really appreciate it. Thank you. And if you're listening to this and you've ever contributed to the conversation, um, that praise is to you. As well, right? Because everybody, I do call-in shows, everyone who emails with questions and all that. So I appreciate that. And I think it's as as a community, we can all take credit for that. So I appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, My question is uh, more pertaining to love than war or politics. Um, Just make love, man, not not war or love. I like how how you separate love from politics. Uh, Some people might disagree. (laughs) But because people worship the state and play politic games with their lovers. But... Let's uh, let's boogie on with your question. Yes, absolutely. Uh, you describe love as an automatic response to virtue in the same way that well-being is an automatic response to health. And I I agree with that. Uh, Sorry, um, you just misquoted me twice. One is important and one is not. I said love is an involuntary response to virtue. Uh, and I also said that uh, health is the result of healthy practices. Uh, in okay. other words, you have to do things that are going to make you healthy. Like losing weight is the result of eating less or better and exercising more or differently. If you do those actions, then you will likely end up with, with weight loss, uh, assuming no other underlying medical condition. And uh, if you stop smoking, you will end up with healthier uh, lungs and, and so on. And so you, you do specific actions and the effect is, is health. And if you do particular actions, then the effect uh, may be love. But uh, go ahead. Okay, um, so by your your definition, you are able to love multiple people. Um, you say you love sure. your listeners all the time and everything. Uh, my question is, what is the qualifiable difference between loving someone and being in love with someone? So, if I if I may elaborate, um, I can love my best friend. And I can love my girlfriend, but the relationship that I cultivate with my girlfriend is clearly different than that which I cultivate with my best friend. Uh, what is the qualifiable difference between that kind of love? Isn't it sex? 
Sorry, you were you were expecting something philosophical. <laughs> I mean, isn't it naughty bits and uh, massive amounts of lubrication um, for those who are circumcised? But uh, is uh, is that not the, you know, unless you're bagging threesomes all over the place, I would imagine that <laughs> it is it is it, it is sex. All right. No, and and look, there's there's some because there's sex involved, right? Uh, love. Uh, because there's sex involved, you have different standards for girlfriends than you do for friends, right? So, for instance, if your friend sleeps around, then, I mean, you may not want to shake their hand without a hazmat suit on, but likely is it's not – they're not going to pass any STDs onto you, right? If you are sharing a bed with a woman and she sleeps around – then you know she might get pregnant, uh, which is going to be horribly complicated, and she also might get you know crabs or gonorrhea or syphilis or some godforsaken thing that makes your nipples rot off or something, and then you have a a, a problem, <laughs> to say the least, right? She might get pregnant and pass that child off as yours, as happens you know five to ten percent of the time apparently, uh, and your friend can't do that, right? She might get married to you, she might divorce you. Or she might just live with you until you're common law and then divorce your ass and claim child support or, or alimony. Well, your friend can't do that, right? So the standards that you have for your friends are going to be lower. I mean, they don't have to be lower, but practically they don't need to be as high as for the love of your life that you may be engaging in a permanent contract with the state as a third party and having kids and so on. You don't need your friend to have a huge amount of patience. But if you're going to have children with a woman, then, well, you you know, you want that woman to have a huge amount of patience because having children requires a huge amount of patience, right? So you, you need trust in a romantic relationship in a way that you just don't need in a friend relationship. Because if you're going to have kids with a woman, then she's going to be – let's say you have two kids – and you want to do the right thing and breastfeed for you know, 18 months or 24 months and stay home with the kids until they're five, then you have a relationship where the woman is going to be dependent upon your stability and kindness and financial generosity for seven plus years. And that's assuming that you're going to dump them in some school – when they're five. If you want to homeschool or unschool, then she is going to be dependent upon you for 20 years. What well, doesn't happen with friends? You don't mesh your finances together. You don't say to your friend, listen, man, I got a great idea for a, a, a series of novels, right? It's like Walking Dead meets Breaking Bad. We shoot heroin, man, into zombies, Meth. Meth. We shoot meth into zombies and then they all turn into Brad Pitt and propagate themselves that way by adopting kids with a truly skinny woman. And you're like, well, that sounds like a pretty trippy idea. I don't know how that's exactly going to work. But it's like, man, it's got Brad Pitt in it already. In the, in the book, Brad Pitt is in it. How hard do you think it's going to be to get Brad Pitt for the movie when he's already in the book? Man, come on. And you're like, well, okay, <laughs> you sound very passionate about this. I'm not sure entirely hinged. In fact, you sound a little unhinged, <laughs> but you sound very passionate about it. And he's like, okay, man, so here's what I need to do, man. I need 
to live in your basement. No. No, screw that. I don't like basements. I'm going to sleep in your bed like next to you. I'm a bit of a fodder, but it's okay because it keeps the eider down like three inches above us in the winter. It keeps us warm. I mean, okay, you pray for death, but you're warm. So I'm a fodder. I'm also a bit of a midnight screamer, and I wet the bed. But I need to stay in your bed (laughs) for 20 years while I work on this novel, and you need to support me financially. Oh, plus, if this novel doesn't work out, I'm going to sue you. (laughs) I mean, if you had a friend like that, you'd be like, huh, (laughs) it seems like a bit of an imposition there, my buddy, my friend. How about this? Why don't you just go be a waiter like everybody else does (laughs) and just write a whole bunch of shit and try and get an agent and try and get published that way? Right? Why'd you need to fart in my bed for 20 years, <laughs> pee all over God knows what, and, and take all my money and sue me if it doesn't work out? So yeah, so, uh, so, so you understand that if you had a friend who wanted to do that, and let's say you wanted to support him in his meth-addicted zombie Brad Pitt novel series, then you would need to really, really believe in and trust this guy that the standards would have to be enormously higher for that. So when I was talking about sex, I mean, obviously there's some practical elements to sexuality like STDs and and so on. But if you're talking, you know, you sound like a young guy. If you're talking about girlfriends and uh, sex, then we're talking about fertility, pregnancy, child rearing. You just need really, uh, really higher standards. Does that that make any sense? It makes perfect sense. Oh, look at that. Hole in one. (laughs) I'm not going to make that joke. It's too tempting. But you thank you. That that really cleared it up. I wasn't sure if there was some additional parts that went into it, but no. That, um. I mean, imagine this. Imagine if I was your husband and I said, "Honey, not only do I want to have a kid, I want to quit my lucrative job as a software executive, and I want to start this this crazy show." Right? Okay, let me tell you about it. Uh, no advertising. Uh, We're going to give everything away for free, uh, all all the books, and there's no advertising on the website or anything like that. I have no idea how the income is going to happen, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to beg. Like, you remember our honeymoon? It'll be like that, but for money. (laughs) And and, and, and I'm going to talk about the least popular topics in the known universe. Like, I'm going to talk about there being no God and no government and the voluntary family, and I'm going to confront people about their child-raising practices. Every conceivable volatile subject in the history of the known universe, I'm going to take the least popular stance on, and I'm going to rely on donations. Does that sound like a plan, honey? (laughs) Now, if you have the best wife in the known universe, she's like, yeah, sounds good. (laughs) And it might even work out. So, uh, yeah, so you need that. You need that kind of stuff. I like it. That sounds good. Thanks, man. Best of luck finding this uh, person, but don't have kids till you do if you want them. I, so, I Mike, believe I have found her. So. Oh, even better. Then, uh, yeah. you know, take off the condom. Ah, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, who do we have next? All right, John, you're up next. Go ahead, John. Uh, do you hear me? I do. Okay. So, Stefan, I'm a long-time listener, first-time caller also, and I have uh, two um, kind of lengthy points to you because <clears throat> I, I basically if you, if, wrote… If you say kind of lengthy, i sorry, if you say kind of lengthy, pick the most yeah. important one first just in case. Um, so, okay. go, go for it. Okay. Okay. I think you uh, might be um, the un- unwittingly uh, supporter of a resource-based economy. Because you think it's uh, not 
what it's not what you think it is and you actually run you uh, one resource based economy at your home and you uh, yet you think it's some kind of marxism so i would like to explain uh, basically uh, what is it what is it that you do basically, sorry is your argument that the family is kind of socialist in nature no because resource based economy is not socialist all right okay go ahead what what do you need to understand is that the money system the market is a kind of information technology and the same functions that are done by market can be done directly by digital signals by sorry by what signals the digital uh, let's say is the venus project centralized uh, no it's not there is no magical infallible authority at the center that knows what goes where the solutions is exactly same as in capitalism the information is out there in people's heads in the environment storages factories nature and so on so what is the difference let's say that the prices are a mechanism of sending signals however today we have a better method of asking people than voting with their wallet and a better form of signals than prices it is a worldwide information digital network with enough processing power to keep track of every single need and resource on the planet and a network that allows us the needs to be met directly like on the market this information cannot motivate people to work except people who motivate themselves so we can deal with that later but it does motivate machines and machines okay sorry let me just let me just interrupt you for a second um, if, if you don't mind so if you say that there's a better way of allocating resources than uh, the the current configuration then basically, uh, no, no, what you're not, saying. Sorry. Not exactly. Not exactly a better way, but a bit. Well, better meta meta way. Better way to get information where to allocate resources. It's basically okay, the same fine. principle. I understand that. So, so capitalism is like you make money from allocating resources more efficiently. That's that. I mean, as a long-time capitalist, you know, if I can figure out a way to automate something then I do that, right? So when I was uh, in the free market, uh, I wrote a massive system to validate all of our code and our database and the web infrastructure and all of that and would give a whole list of things that needed to be fixed before we did testing. And it allowed us to cut our testing time down by like 80%. And so we just leave it running overnight and then we'd bang out the fixes and we wouldn't have to go back and forth with QA a lot. So that's just a more efficient use of resources. It makes more sense to spend a couple of weeks programming a validation tool than it does to spend a couple of months every year checking stuff which can be check it, checked automatically. So because of all of that, uh, we were able to offer systems faster and, and cheaper and all that kind of stuff. Now, if you have a way of allocating resources more efficiently, this is what you're telling me, or at least this is what I hear. You're saying, Steph, I have the greatest song that has ever been written. I mean, more complex <laughs> than Bohemian Rhapsody, of a simpler and more delicious melody than Yesterday, of a funkier rhythm than Papa's Got a Brand New Bag. You <laughs> go on and on, right? This is the greatest song ever written. And it's going to totally dominate the charts, and it's going to chart longer than Dark Side of the Moon. And I'm like, okay, well then go, go release it. right? Because if you have a more efficient way of allocating resources, then it will be a very simple matter to get venture capitalist funding for your venture. And since it's more efficient than the price mechanism, 
you will get the money you need to buy the resources, right? People will give you millions and millions of dollars to buy the resources, and then your algorithm will allocate them more efficiently, and people will transition to, well, to that well, system. No, 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 no algorithm. Uh, this is a basic, I don't okay, know how to explain it, but matter. it's a new on, way. Sorry, sorry. How to no, 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 we got to stay on this point. If you don't like the word algorithm, magic beans. Uh, I don't care, right? Whatever X you have, <laughs> well, that allocates things is more. Central. No, no. Let me finish. Whatever X you have that, al- that, that if, uh, allocates things more efficiently, you will dominate the economy because you're more efficient, right? Mm, I, I don't think so because this is not an uh, allocating algorithm is not superior to another uh, algorithm that has a lot of energy below it. It just cannot play on its uh, weight uh, category, right? All right. So I think we're we're losing the point here. Okay, just give me a couple uh, because, of yes-no questions, and I'm sorry for interrupting. I, I, I'm sorry for interrupting. Okay, okay hang okay. on. Is it more uh, efficient than the existing system? Is it better in some way? It is not yet an it. It is a new way how to think, how to design a new system that which can be later tested to be seen if it's more efficient. And if you understand it, you you will understand basically. Uh, you will solve uh, another of problem of yours that I can tell no, you no, later. No, sorry, because, sorry. Okay. okay. Is what you're propo- is what you're proposing in your view better than the existing system? Yes, it is better, of course. Okay, fantastic. Okay. So it's better than the existing system because it serves human needs better. Uh, it allocates resources more efficiently. It reduces overhead, whatever it's going to be that is more efficient. Will people who want to make money be interested in something that is more efficient and cheaper and better and for which there is going to be greater consumer demand, right? So if I found a way to produce an iPad for free, or something like an iPad well, for free. I, I, I totally I get you. I, I get you. I get what, what. I totally get what are you trying to say. But the uh, big, big surprise I'm trying to tell you is that what I propose is already a reality. People already do it, and it is only as good as much resources and energy we have. So on the scale of family, we have a family. On the scale of a corporation, we have a corporation. So in within a family and within a corporation, we don't use the price system. We use direct information allocation. So we already do that. I'm sorry. Sorry. Wait a sec. Did you say that in a corporation, there's no price system? Basically, as I, as I see it, the employees just uh, pass things to each other. They uh, put things in the, into the storage, and then they don't use the price system to tell what goes where. They just there is a guy he tells. He but wait, knows. wait, sorry to interrupt. If there's no price system in a corporation, how do you determine profit? I mean, you have a price as a business owner. I have prices. I've got, I've got rent. Uh, for my office, I have uh, computer costs, uh, electricity costs. I've got employee costs. I mean, you name it. I got, I got airfare. I got hotels. I got, uh, you know, unit software costs, and those are all costs for me. And I have to uh, produce uh, value or receive more than I'm spending, at least in the long run. So I'm not sure how a corporation isn't subjected to to prices. Profit is an interface to the outside market. It is not used inside of a company. No, it is. No, it is. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Sorry, you're just wrong about that. So if I pay a salesman $100,000 a year 
and he produces $10,000 worth of sales, then he is not profitable. That's It's within the corporation, right? Or if I have a programmer who produces one line of code a week, then he's not uh, he's not profitable. So within a corporation, every employee has profits and losses. Well, but what do you tell them by uh, giving them money? Money doesn't tell employees or machines what to do. It doesn't tell them what to what thing to put where. You mean money doesn't have like money isn't like the annoying orange, right? Saying, "Hey, employee! Hey, employee! Be profitable! Hey, employee! Knife!" <laughs> Sorry, but no, money doesn't well, tell people that's right. That's correct. But money is a measure as to whether what you're providing is uh, is a value uh, and is more efficient for the people that you're providing it to. Yes, it's it's a measure, but it's it's not like important for the tasks. To uh, it's not like a direct problem solution. It's important. Have you? Uh, sorry, have you uh, have you ever run a business uh, in the past? Uh, no, but should I to understand it? I think you might want to, or at least read a little bit more about the economics of, uh, of business, because the things that you're saying are just not not correct. Because, well, let's say let's try a family, because the same principle works in the family, and it's not like uh, you have a business in your family. So, well, I certainly agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. The family is a very different economic relationship. I don't charge my daughter rent. Uh, she doesn't work uh, and all that kind of stuff. I, yeah, I fully – with parent-child exactly, – now, family, family is a sort of – you know, but parent-child is, is a different relationship uh, fundamentally, right? Uh, and one of the reasons we know that is that children don't have the ability to enter contracts. Uh, they don't have the ability to vote. Uh, they don't have the ability to go out and get jobs when they're five and all that kind of stuff. So children, through their dependent position, have enormously curtailed rights, right? So rights and responsibilities kind of go hand in hand. So we will uh, – most charities or most uh, – even governments will say, okay, we're going to put you in a home because you're mentally handicapped or something, but that comes with a severe curtailment of responsibilities, and that's that's the sort of sliding scale. So the more freedom you have, the more responsibility you have, and and vice versa. So, so that is the case with families, right? Now I can't treat adults like idiots and children. Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> right? so I, I, I so so the, so comparing the family, which is um, where people voluntarily create other people, and those children have very few. Uh, responsibilities and very few rights means that if you want to extend that to society as a whole, then you have to decide, divide society into two classes of people, those who have a lot of responsibilities and rights and those who have very few responsibilities and rights. And I don't feel comfortable doing that with society as a whole because that's just not how people work. Most people are of average intelligence and reasonable levels of competence and and so on, right? So. So I just – I don't think you, – you can't sort of say that society should work like there are parents and children, right? There are people who shit themselves. No, no, no. I, yes, yes, you, around the I'm still, still not good at explaining it. Basically, uh, price system is a way of communication outside on the market. But within, within a family, we have a better way of communication. We tell each other what we want. We have our memories and so on. And in a corporation, we have uh, phone calls. We have email. We have uh, warehouse software and so on. We uh, coordinate uh, what, what we do, our daily schedule. And I would paraphrase you on your recent show. 
The resource-based economy is directly mirrored in the very act of living in a family. Therefore, you don't use the price system and competition when managing your household and loved ones. You said you educated your daughter for years for uh, how the world works. So you don't worry. What if she tells you that she wants a doll made of gold and diamonds, right? She's smart, she's educated, and she knows what is or isn't possible. So um, I don't like to receive uh, like arguments. So what if somebody wants a golden house and so on learning about the reality is the basis so this is the point i I wanted to make Um, price system is just a simple mechanism of communication and we today have a better mechanisms of communication but you did not okay but sorry sorry to interrupt so in the society that you propose who are the children what what do you mean by children like well, uh, people, biology... who, uh, people who don't have to work and have no r- real rights. What what are what are rights? You mean every, everyone needs rights, and everyone should be able to work if they want to. So okay, basically... well then, then you can't compare. Sorry, then you can't bring my daughter into it because my daughter cannot work. My daughter cannot enter into contracts. My daughter cannot vote. My daughter cannot drive. My daughter cannot fly an airplane. My daughter cannot be left alone unsupervised until the ah. age of 12. Right? So in my, in my, in, if you're going to compare society to the family, my question is who are the children? Because the family structure is around children. So who, is, who are the children in, a, in your society? The children are those who cannot be educated by any means. Okay. And how many of those are in society? I don't know, but we can always solve this problem. It's not many, right? It's not many. I don't know. But uh, this is just a communication and mechanism. I don't know what's uh, relevant about this point. Uh, No, look, come on, come on. You have to know what's relevant. If you're going to compare society to the family and you're saying you don't charge kids for rent, you don't, right? Then you have to tell me who in society are the children. And if you say, well, almost nobody in society are the children, then you can't compare it to the family, right? If I say, well, this, this stuff is like water, uh, and, and as you say, in, in which way is it like water? And I say, well, it's as hard as a diamond and as dry as a desert. And I say, well, then it's not like water, right? So if you say society is like the family, uh, and then I say, well, this is how the family is structured with regards to children, then you have to tell me who are the children in your society. I think you have connected two things together. Uh... Basically, who can work and who has rights? This is like connecting these, these things is not uh, not necessary. I think everyone should have rights and nobody should be forced to work and we have means to carry it out. I'm sorry, who is, who is forced to work now? Like who, who goes to someone with a gun and says you have to work? Ah well, this is this is a deeper point. I this could take a while to explain because if you, you use this kind of argument, this, this is a rabbit hole basically. I think I propose we we move to the next point because there is a way. There is a reason why I'm having uh, such problems communicating with you. Okay. Um. I, I will scroll a little down because um, 
There, there is a kind of a serious thing I have to talk to you about. When you talk about the market, it, it's strange. You get all misty-eyed and things you say are get really simple as if from a textbook. Like, not like when you talk about the real-life issues like parenting or violence or politics. Where I stand, it doesn't look like you're using your full brain potential. It's like you had this market okay, and okay. money look, stuff. Look, sorry, sorry, sorry. If, if you want to make an argument, make an argument. But don't just tell me that I'm wrong. Right. I mean, you, you don't 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 frame the discussion like Steph, you, you, you're not emotional about this stuff. And the idea that I'm not emotional about parenting or not connected to parenting, I think, is is not true. But just saying, well, it doesn't seem like you're using your whole brain. Just just tell me where I'm logically incorrect. And, and then you've 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 made your case. Well, I, this this is not like a case. This is uh, more like showing you a mirror. And you would like you would have to step into my shoes for a moment. It's like a story. Let me let me tell you a story, because it, the story doesn't have to be true. It has just to like offer a point of view, right? Because I I have listened many many. Sorry, if you want to tell me a story, that's fine. It, this is a philosophy show, so it's not story time show now if you want to tell me a very brief story i think that's fine but we are sort of into the reason and evidence stuff uh, as best we can and even when we do things like sort of dream analysis and so on there usually has to be some kind of uh, rationale behind what is what is occurring and it also has to have connection with the dreamer's history and so on but um if you want to tell me a very brief story i think that's okay Okay, so there uh, there are topics in which uh, all your thinking is brilliant, and there and then there are topics when you get really simple and you don't you are not so. Hey, brilliant you're not telling as you me a story. Before. Sorry, you're not telling me a story. You're just kind of insulting me. If the story is let's insult Steph, then I don't want to hear that story. I mean, if you have a story where I'm wrong, or if you want to tell me a story, I like unicorns. So if you want to tell me a story about something like that, uh, that would be great. But let's not have a story called Steph is not thinking somewhere. Have you, have you, have you heard about black holes? A black hole is a point so massive that it wraps the space itself around and it is invisible because all the light goes around it. If you would stand on the surface or even horizon of a black hole, you would see yourself, you would see all the universe around you, but you would not see the black hole. And this is what I think you have. You have a blind spot, which totally prevents you from seeing something and which only as outside observer like me can see. And I have observed you for months. And you are very, uh, very reliant on logical consistency, but this is not about logic. This is about input you give to this logic. This is a case of garbage in, garbage out, even if the internal logic is perfect. So this is very, very tricky, and it's very um, goes deep into personality. And I have dealt with this before in my personality. So I kind of think I have the same kind of black hole uh, case here. And I think this is ruining your show because it's so public. It's so about economy sometimes, and this is a frequent topic. So I am worried about you, Stefan. Well, I appreciate that. but And I, I remember when I was reading some of the comments on my debate with Peter Joseph that people were saying, well, you can see from Steph's body language that he doesn't believe what he's saying. And now you're – and therefore, you know, maybe because I'm leaning forward, I'm wrong. And now you're saying, Steph, you're wrong because black holes. And 
I, you look, I, I appreciate. I could be wrong. I, I, yeah, absolutely. I mean, good heavens, there's no, <laughs> there's no infallibility under sun or moon. But the challenge is to not tell me that I'm wrong because of an analogy, right? The challenge is to show me uh, through reason and evidence, or either one is fine, how I am logically incorrect, right? Saying, uh, Steph, there are black holes that warp space-time, and therefore your thinking is incorrect, is not thinking. That's an attempt to provoke insecurity through analogy. Uh, And saying that you're worried about me is, I mean, I guess I appreciate that, but it's not, it's not an argument, right? Well, then, then please take it just as a hypothesis. I would say there are topics in which about which you can think in many different ways, and there are topics about which you can think in just one or two ways. And uh, you d- don't, don't know this. You can think of many alternatives in one area, let's say relationships, but when it comes to market, you can think only in one way about market. And I think can things... Like, I can think in several ways about the market. I think this is limiting your potential here. Really. Okay, so I can only think one way, but thinking in many ways is better and my potential is limited. I think that the key thing that you said earlier is where I'll end this conversation. You said it's not about logic, and from that standpoint, I would certainly agree with you. Mike, who's next? All right, Francois, you're up next. Go ahead, Francois. Hi, uh, thank you. Uh, hi, uh, Stefan. And uh, we've met before, but uh, I like your show a lot. And thank you. And um, thank you for having me there. I have a personal question, but I don't know if I'm allowed to uh, say a few remarks about the previous color or not. Uh, Please. Uh, it is your show. I mean, I'm just trying to facilitate. So <laughs> go for it. I have a remark for the previous color who wanted to promote his like resource-based economy or whatever crypto socialist scheme was there. And uh, I noticed that he seemed um, intent on things as being a communication problem when actually what matters is an incentive problem. The problem is not knowing, oh, I want more resources. Everyone wants more resources. The problem is having... Uh, well, as you said, uh, rights who decides which resource goes where, but also uh, how people are going to be incentivized to do the right thing. And even inside uh, a company, I was recently in a, in a, working at a company where there were a lot of um, organizational issues. And when I tried to talk to the, to the top manager in my department, he also only saw... Uh, communication issues, oh, we're going to solve these communication issues. And you couldn't even, like, uh, problems of incentives didn't even register with him. And I yeah, I mean, like, I, I, get, uh, I get frustrated with the resource guys because it's just it's such a moving goalpost. You know, I mean, and, and also contradictory information doesn't slow them down, right? So if somebody says to me price is not relevant internal to a corporation – I mean, that's just. I mean, if price wasn't relevant, you pay everyone a bazillion dollars. If price wasn't relevant, internal to a corporation, and they talk about things that they haven't studied, they talk about things that they haven't had any direct or even indirect experience of, and uh, that I think is uh, indicative of. Uh, to me, it's just immature, non non thinking, right? So if if your argument is that we can run society like a family, 
and you know there are children in families that you don't charge. It's like okay, well, who are the children in society? Well, no, that analogy. Does, all, all they do is they make claims, and then you point out logical inconsistencies, and they say that you're incorrect, and then that you're a black hole. I mean, this is just silly, right? Uh, but you know, it's important to expose people to silliness uh, so that they can spot it and uh, recognize it. So, uh, go ahead if you like with your question. Uh, yes. Okay. So my question, as such, is that uh, um, I'm, I think, uh, uh, a guy with a lot of potential. I think I'm very intelligent, etc. But I'm, I feel I'm vast underperformer and underachiever. And uh, every time people ask a, a question in your in your show, you go back to their childhood, and I can you indeed see that I'm. Uh, repeating some patterns of things I've lived in my childhood, and that that makes me very worried because I, I now have a I now have a daughter, and uh, I'm wondering how I'm going to uh, escape um, doing to her what's been done to me, even uh, uh, even in a reduced way. And well, Francois, I appreciate that that attempt at self knowledge, but you have to remember the whole problem is the price system. <laughs> I'm just kidding. What? Look, that's that's, okay. <laughs> that's, that's great. Uh, that's really great that, that you're recognizing these kinds of things. How old is your daughter? Uh, a year and a half now. Oh, fantastic. Good for you. Good for you. I mean, for thinking about these things and so on. Yeah, I think so far she's happy and so far I'm not doing too, too much wrong, but I can also already see me uh, – neglecting her, relatively speaking, emotionally. I, I know I had some uh, emotional neglect when I was a kid, and that probably uh, like accounts for a lot of my insecurities. But I see me doing that to her to a point, and <laughs> I'm worried. And Okay, so how do I go from understanding these issues, this childhood trauma, how do I go from knowing to doing or... Uh, well, okay. So the first thing to do is, in my opinion, and if you don't mind this, uh, I'll try to be insistent, is I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions. I need short answers. I know that you have a French background. I still need short answers. Of course. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so can you tell me a little bit about the emotional neglect, neglect that you experienced as a child? Well, I think that for a long time, my father was emotionally out of the picture until he had got like health problems, and then he became more emotional, more, more open emotionally. Uh, he was often like just locking himself out in his office, and I wouldn't see him for the whole day, and he wouldn't uh, get involved in our life or in our education until we were old enough to. Uh, to learn mathematics, he was always good at teaching mathematics. That was his job and his And uh, how old love. were you uh, when your father became more involved? Maybe I was like an adult. I don't know, but maybe... Oh, so basically you didn't feel much connection with your father until you were an adult? Mm, yeah, or until I was not an adult, but like uh, uh, an adolescent. Uh, and my mother was never a very emotional person she had a strong sense of duty and sense of justice and she did like do everything uh for us but it was never she was never a warm person or emotionally um what do you mean when you say she did everything for you that sounds like a a very wide blanket i don't do everything for my daughter 
right? I mean, <laughs> I try, I just don't, right? Yeah, I mean, she she did she did all the chores. She did um, uh, she cared for education. She also tried to impose her values, and uh, she uh, she did some spanking, which I, I reckon, reckon is is wrong. Although she didn't do. Did a, uh, not that often. I mean, uh, I, I I don't remember how often, but I, I, just roughly, you, you know, maybe once a month. It depends. It could be like not at all for a few months, and then some months, several times a week. But uh, it was several never like uh, wow. Uh, I mean, at times, in, times in a row at at the times, and then not at all for months. Uh, uh, usually, it was prompted by our not behaving uh, in school or whatever or nope. something and nope. I, I, no 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 oh no. my god i can't believe i have to say this every time okay no. okay yes sorry no listen this is this is what abuse victims say yes my husband beat me because his dinner wasn't warm enough my husband beat me because uh, i i wasn't wearing makeup when he came home my husband beat me because he thought the pair of shoes i bought were too expensive Sure, my sure. husband beat me because the children were too loud. You understand? Okay, okay. I, I, what would you say? What would you say to someone like that? Yes, I, I say that the prompt is not uh, either uh, an excuse or or, or it's, it's the explanation. It's just it's just a prompt, and she had to will it, and she had indeed she wanted that, that's how she understood and understood discipline, and and she was wrong, and that that's indeed abuse, and I. I remember after leaving home and coming back home and seeing her abuse my sister. It, I remember once it all fell down. Wow! And I, the, the day I realized how I had been abused, but because by seeing her uh, trying to like abuse my sister, both like learning her violin lessons, I could see, I could see the abuse that I had suffered while I was living with her, and it all. Came back uh, at once, like it was like ten, twenty. Okay, years I ago. just, I just want to be really clear and never let it pass when people say, "Yes, I caused or what I did to bring about the abuse." Yes. Okay. Okay, no, I just no, want to be I, really, really I, clear about that. Yes, I, I, I meant more prompter than cause. I didn't. Well, I think you understand what I mean. I mean, uh, my my mother uh, would. Okay, but let me let me let me sort of tell you because when people also the reason I paused when you said my mother did everything for us, you know, there's this funny thing where there's this there's this story in society, and just just be patient for a sec because I think this is important to your motivation uh, issues and so on. There's a story in society which is that parents do stuff for their children and that creates an obligation, or parents do stuff for their children and that means that they're kind. And this is as ludicrous as me sending $100 to a charity and then sending a bill for $100 to that charity. Of course. Right? I mean, we owe our parents absolutely nothing because they fed and clothed us. Nothing. Nothing, nothing, nothing. We owe our parents, uh, like we owe everyone in the world, a justice, which is a true apprehension of moral stature. Right. So, you know, because you've given you've given a number of excuses for your mother. The first is she did everything for us. The second is this is how she understood discipline. I mean, yes. 
But <laughs> so what? I mean, I'm sure, you, I'm not sure you know that. I'm not sure you know that for sure as the victim. And the other thing too is that she should learn about how to be a parent when she's a parent. I mean, we expect I mean, people who go driving without a license get thrown in jail. And it's a lot safer to drive without a license than it is to spank children because one is only possible harm and the other is certain harm. So I just want to point out that if you're going to start making excuses, then no, I, no, no. I, 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 sorry, I thoroughly agree with you that uh, she, she did wrong, and there's no excuse for that. Uh, there is an explanation that which was, I mean, relatively speaking, she was much less abusive than she was abused, but that's an explanation. That's not an excuse. Um, no, no, so, that's not an explanation. An explanation is deterministic. Right? I, I was abused. I was abused. Why am I not an abuser? Um, that, that gets back to the issue of free will, if you want. Uh, but, but, uh, and, and sorry, we, yes. don't, we don't need – sorry, hang on a sec. We don't need to philosophically understand the arguments for free will to find out if your mother was responsible. All who oh, punish – listen, listen. All who punish accept free will. All who punish children accept free will. Now, some people punish dogs, but they generally punish dogs because they think the dogs are bad, right? I mean, they probably projected more free will on the dogs than dogs actually have. But all who punish children say that they are punishing their children because the children did something wrong, made a bad choice, disobeyed, were careless, were foolish. And so... We know for certain – like I bet you your mother didn't spank you saying, I had a bad day. I need to take it out on someone. Bend over, right? She didn't say that. You said to me, it came about because you did something wrong or you did something disobedient or something like that. And therefore, she punished you because you had the choice to do something better. You did something worse and therefore you must be punished. And so yes. she imposed the standards of free will on you when you were a little boy. And therefore, yes. she fully accepts the standards of free will. And therefore, she made the choice to not learn better parenting. She made the choice to spank. She made the choice to not sit down with your father and confront mm -hmm. him about his emotional distance. I mean, yes. if, I spent, if I spent two hours not talking to my daughter when I wasn't working – do you know what my wife would say? Hey, what's going on? Why are you guys not? Uh, why are you guys not connected? Why is there, is there some problem? Is there some distance? Are you upset? Right? Because that's what we do as parents: is we make sure our own parenting is good, and we make sure that the other person's parenting is good. So, if you yes. were an adolescent before your father began to take even an abstract intellectual interest in you. Then your mother made the choice to have a child with that person and also then to let that person be a distant and absent father for 15 years. These are 100% her choices, 100% her responsibility. There are no explanations. There are no excuses because no explanations or excuses are offered to or accepted by children. Were you ever about to get spanked and then were able to offer an explanation which prevented the spanking? Yes, of you course. Were. Okay, tell me that. Tell me what happened. Well, there was an argument, but in the end, if she if she thought that uh, 
uh, I breached the code of conduct that uh, she imagined was uh, necessary, then she would uh, she would spank, or, or she would, if I could argue my case uh, according to her uh, own standards. But uh, um, uh, I, I, I mean, once again, I, I'm not here to uh, to make excuses for my mother. I'm more worried about how not to propagate. Uh, Okay, so I'm working on that I, I, I with just, you. I'm working on that with you. Look, okay. when you have, yes, I'm trying to remember how you put it. You said that you were underutilized or failing to achieve your potential. Yes, I think that's, that's because you are providing some sort of excuse for yourself that permits yes. you to not achieve your potential. Yes. So if I hear someone who says I am making a lot of excuses for myself. The first mm-hmm. thing I'm going to look at is who else have they made excuses for in the past? Uh, yes, but like somebody says okay. to me, but, I speak Esperanto. My first question is, who taught you Esperanto? I mean, you didn't just come up with it on your own, right? Yes, 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 yes. But uh, once again, uh, even assuming this is, I mean. Uh, okay, so, so she, she, for whatever reasons, including most, uh, most importantly, uh, her, her own, she failed, and the context where she was, well, well, she failed. Okay, how am no, I going? No, to you're fail? still making no. excuses. You're still making excuses because the word failure has no moral yes. content, right? Yes. Because the word failure covers many, many things, the vast majority of which has no moral content. Right? Okay. If I if I sure. if I fail to to uh, do a proper flip on a trampoline, there's no moral content to that, right? Um probably not. So but okay, let's say she was okay. Wait, so wait, what, what do you mean I probably not? Was... Hang on, hang on, hang on. What do you mean okay. probably not? Okay, no, no, no. You, 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 you're right. That uh, so it, it, it's a word that's de- deliberately morally neutral, and, which means uh, that you're still making excuses. And I'm not criticizing you for that. I'm really not. I'm not trying to say that you're doing anything wrong or bad in any way, shape, or form. Okay, it's just so that. Okay, so what word would you use in this case? Well, that my mother what, chose no, to be I mean, abusive. Yeah, she was abusive. She chose to be abusive, and she, she. Yeah, she she was abusive. I mean, to a certain point. I mean, I, I've heard cases in your shows that were like a zillion times more abusive, but that doesn't make. It, in the end, she she still she still like uh, transgressed. She she did the wrong thing, and she was she chose to do the wrong thing. And okay, but uh, and non-interaction with children is also abusive. Yes, and uh, I think so. That your father uh, chose to be abusive by not interacting with you. Because children yes. need interaction with their parents to grow, to develop, to get a sense of their own potential, to learn how to negotiate, to learn how to interact, how to have conversations, to develop social skills. You mm-hmm. cannot morally have a child and then not interact with that child. And I'm not saying your father never interacted with you. I understand that. Sure. But this was a very destructive to not interact with your children. Nobody forced him to have children. I assume your mother didn't drug him and extract <laughs> semen from his balls with a turkey baster, right? So nobody forced him to have children. But once you have children, you have a responsibility. If you don't want to interact with your children, then damn well give the children up to someone who will. 
Yeah. Because you can't have any more responsibility in your life than you assigned to your parents. Let me, tell you, let me say that again. You cannot have any more responsibility in your life than you assigned to your parents. If you think your okay. parents are like dominoes from their history, then you are going to be like dominoes with your history. You cannot have any more will in your life than you ascribe to your parents or your teachers or your authority figures or your priests or anything like that. The moment you start stripping away choice – and will and freedom and moral responsibility from your parents, you will start stripping it away from yourself because our brains are universalizing machines. This is why it is so okay. impossible to segregate. Let me finish. This is why it's so impossible to segregate the rules that we make. Everybody wants to have different rules, right? But we don't have different rules. We don't have different rules. And – Deep down, whatever we forgive our parents for, we forgive ourselves for. Now, if our parents have earned our forgiveness, if they've done us wrong and they've earned our forgiveness, fantastic. I could not be more pleased. But if we make excuses for our parents and we say they are not responsible for what they did or they were doing the best they could but the circumstances they had or they didn't know any better or they weren't really in charge or they weren't really in control or they had a bad childhood, all we're doing is we are making exactly the same excuses for ourselves deep down. I was yes. able to develop my own strength of character and willpower by giving strength of character and willpower to my parents. By refusing to pretend that they were sort of dandelion <laughs> seeds blowing in the wind, by ascribing them full moral responsibility, I was able to gain full moral responsibility for myself. And this is why I'm chipping away at the excuses that you make. And I understand this. Thank really, you. I do. And I'm not trying to – it's a perfectly natural response. And it's a healthy response when you're a child. But if you're concerned about your own lack of uh, motivation, uh, then I would argue that you need to assign full responsibility to everyone around you, 100% responsibility. And also, every adult around you – gets 1,000 times the moral responsibility that you had as a child, at least, if not a Googleplex, as my daughter would say, if not nearly infinite. Every adult around you has thousands of times more moral responsibility than you have or had as a child. That's what I'm saying. And you're sort of giving me a scenario where the tail wags the dog and somehow your choices as a child provoke your mother's um, abuse in terms of hitting you. And I'm just telling you that your mother wouldn't believe that <laughs> fundamentally because she acted in the opposite manner. All who punish children fully accept moral responsibility, free will, and choice. And they, by punishing children, say the child should have known better, the child should have listened, the child should have understood. And schools do this all the time. Schools do this all the time. I never got a single pass in school for my abusive household. I never got it. And I, nobody ever said to me, well, Steph, I mean, obviously you can't study. Your household's insane, right? You're hungry. You're, you're scared of getting evicted. Your mother hasn't gotten out of bed for three weeks. So you don't have to take this math test right now because we've got other kids whose moms are great, healthy, wonderful science teachers, so 
we understand you come from a very difficult background, a very difficult environment. No, I was scored the same as every other goddamn child. And I'm like, okay, I, I get that. I get that. So circumstances doesn't mean a damn thing. Doesn't mean a goddamn thing. You get judged the same no matter what. That's when you're a child and have no control over your environment. I did not get to claim bad childhood, bad history. I mean, Jesus, the kids, I mean, everybody knew it. I was coming to school in clothes with holes in them. I probably smelt like pig pen from peanuts. <laughs> my mom never showed up to a single parent-teacher meeting. My mom would put down the wrong grade on my paperwork. She didn't even know what grade I was in. <laughs> I forged my mother's signature half the time, <laughs> right? I mean, no, God, now I'm going to get a call from my guidance counselor, <laughs> <laughs> right? But but there was no there was no excuse for me based upon my environment when I was – six or seven or eight or 10 or 15 years old. I was held to exactly the same standards as a helpless, dependent, and abused child. I was held to exactly the same standards as everyone else. My history, my circumstances, my environment counted for nothing. And I am somebody who has had the extreme pleasure and occasional misfortune to have truly listened to what society's moral rules were. And I was told in no uncertain terms that truly victimized environment was no excuse. Now, if it was no excuse for me to be the victim of abuse, then how could it possibly be – how could there possibly be any excuse for my victimizers? Right? That would be like saying, well, you're in prison. You're in prison – so you have to have as good a tan as everyone else who's out, out of prison or we're going to beat you. Right? And that, that would make no sense. I mean, I mean but, but these are the rules that society has. It doesn't matter if you're in prison. You better have as good a tan as everyone else. Too bad. doesn't matter. Irrelevant. Okay, fine. I get it. I get it. So circumstances are no excuse whatsoever. So then – no parents, no teachers, no politicians, no preachers, no adults of reasonably sound mental competence can claim circumstance or excuse. I mean, if my own childhood was no excuse for underperforming in school, if my childhood was no excuse for underperforming in school, then no adult can claim circumstance in any way, shape, or form. If my own childhood was no excuse for underperforming in school, then no parent's childhood can be an excuse for underperforming as a parent. I didn't choose to be in school. I didn't choose my family. People choose to get married and have children. I had no capacity to leave the school or to leave my family as a child. People have the full capacity to leave bad marriages and to abandon parenting. If you don't like being a parent, you can drop your kids off at a hospital and somebody will find a home for them. Right? So I'm just – I'm really pointing this out that when you take full moral responsibility for yourself – you can usually only get there by assigning full moral responsibility to others. No excuses at all. Full choice. You know, the, the sentence that I remember from when I was a kid, I don't know, I was maybe 12 or 13, and a teacher sat me down and said, you know, you're such a bright kid, Steph. I mean, it's obvious. You're such a bright kid. I mean, my English teacher read a novel I was working on <laughs> when I was in grade eight. Right, So I was, what, 12 or 13 uh -huh. years old. I was taking – when I was in grade 8, I took a grade 13 writing course 
because everybody recognized that I was a great communicator and a great writer and all that. I remember the teacher saying, you know, if effort matched ability, you'd be an A+. You just need to try harder, you see. You're kind of lazy. You're coasting on your abilities, you see, Steph. You just need to work harder. You're just not, you know, you're not focused. You're not trying. It's like, hey, you mm-hmm. fuckers. <laughs> Come home and spend a weekend at my place and tell me how I should try harder. Anyway, so I'm just, this is what society says to children. You're fully responsible. Uh, circumstances don't matter. Bad childhoods don't matter. You're judged the same as everyone else. Okay, I get it. Then don't pull, as parents, don't pull as adults any kind of excuses because that which you do not grant to six-year-olds, you cannot claim as 30-year-olds. Okay. Okay, okay, sorry, that's but, the end of the okay. speech. I, 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 I think I, I agree. I think I understand the idea. But uh, somehow, from understanding the idea uh, that there is no excuse, indeed, no one has any excuse, and people are fully responsible for every, each and every of their actions and their decisions. Um, and this is... Uh, uh, just because they have explanations, no explanation is an excuse, and they're still fully responsible. And I'm fully responsible, and if I fail my daughter, I will be fully responsible for each and of my bad decisions. And if I choose to let down my daughter, it will be by my own choosing. Uh, though I uh, don't know which word you would use then for a moral failing, if you don't want me to use the word fail. Um, uh well, we have, I mean, immorality, yeah. evil, whatever you want to call it. I mean, we have lots of words for morally bad things, right? Okay. So if I choose evil, I will have chosen evil. And, uh, yeah. Okay. And uh, if I choose a small evil, I, it's not that bad as if I choose a greater evil, but it's still evil. Um, okay. Uh, okay. So let's, I'm sorry. I appreciate your patience and I'm sorry to interrupt yes. you, but I think you've got the hang of that. So my question then becomes, what yes. is it that you want to achieve that you feel you're capable of achieving? Um, there are so many things, uh, I think. But for instance, uh, most obviously right now, I mean, not such a happy marriage because I, I chose badly in the past. Sorry, not, such, also not way... such a happy what? Uh, marriage, relationship with my wife. Oh, marriage. Sorry. Yeah, got uh, it, got it. Okay. Um so uh, I will have at some point to choose uh, how to improve the situation. And um, I'm also in not such a happy employment situation. Uh, and I will have to choose to, to go freelance or do something else. And um, I'm often postponing my choices, but it's also because, uh, well, partly because of my insecurities and partly because of the of um, uh, lack, lack of knowledge or it's tied to insecurity, but uh, um, I suppose I'm afraid of, uh, of the unknown and I'm afraid to just jump and, and do things and uh, I tend to postpone and let uh, the world decide for me. And um, suppose I tend to avoid choice and... Um, and so, yes, I've made bad choices in the past, and I also avoid uh, the choice of changing the things and uh, risking to lose a lot or 
or so what are the issues i, I don't go your, out of my comfort sorry to interrupt what are the issues with your uh, marriage well, i think that just like my parents i i've i've i'm in a relationship where i have a good uh, intellectual connection with my wife but not such a good uh, um, compatibility in characters or uh, you mean emotionally yes and, uh, okay. Now, do you understand that you have, as a model, with your father, yes. emotional distance, right? Yes. And that, I, that, that's why I realized that I'm totally re, uh, repeating the pattern. I mean, with obviously differences, and I hope uh, not as badly, but I'm repeating the pattern, and that worries me. Right. Right. Okay. And that's good. I mean, it should worry you because we don't want that, right? So if your father yes. is 100% responsible for his emotional distance, yes. then you are 100% responsible for your emotional distance. I am. Right? I am this is fine. Again, I'm, I'm just trying to – I'm just nagging and I apologize for that. But that's what I want to sort of point out. If you don't give your father any excuses, then you don't have any excuses, right? If you say, well, my father was the way he was because of his childhood and his – right, then you say, well, I am you, – you give yourself excuses for lowered standards, right? Lower standards for everyone. There's only one dial. There's only one switch for everyone that you have in your brain. So crank it up for your father and crank it up for yourself. The moment I realized that my history was an excuse for nothing, right, this is really, really important. The moment that I realized that my history – was an excuse for nothing, was the moment I was freed from my history. The great danger of history is that we use it as an excuse and remained trapped in it. Right? I cannot blame my history for anything. And therefore, I have to have high standards for myself. I have to have standards. This is what philosophy is. What is philosophy? Philosophy of standards independent of history. What has history given us? Cannibalism, religion, statism, war, child abuse. This is what history gives us. Right? Science, philosophy, medicine, biology, they say, screw history. What are the standards? The scientist doesn't say, well, all of the prior scientists believe this, so I guess it's true. The scientist says what is true. To break the momentum of history means that we can assign zero responsibility for our actions to that history. I am responsible for – if I want to be free of my past, I must be 100% responsible for my moral choices and can blame nothing on my history. So you have a father hmm? who was emotionally distant but intellectually engaged, right? when you were yes. suitable to his preferences. And you have a yes. wife, you say, that you are emotionally distant from but intellectually engaged with, right? Yes. Okay. Now, as to how you change that, well, you know, it's all therapy and self-knowledge and all that kind of stuff that I've talked about a lot of times mm -hmm. before. But mm -hmm. the reality is that knowing that your father was emotionally distant mm -hmm. is – tells you what you need to do that is the opposite, right? There's a great old poster from de demotivational posters, and, and basically it's a ship going down, and it says, it could be <laughs> that the sole purpose of your life is to serve as a warning to others. <laughs> and yes. that's sort of how I feel about a lot of the people that I grew up with. All that they did was show me what not to do. I mean, you know, if, if your grandfather chokes his life out with emphysema and lung cancer at the age of 66 – 
what is he telling you? Don't smoke, <laughs> right? As he speaks through that electric hole in his throat, right? Don't smoke. Yes. It's a warning to others, right? Uh, and to his credit, and this is my, why my shielding father... people, sorry, shielding people from the negative consequences also shields us from seeing examples of what not to do. But, but anyway, like you know, somebody dies poor because they got sick and didn't have insurance. Well, well buy insurance. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of what. And that's again, when I was a kid, if I didn't study, and other kids did study, they'd say, "Well, those kids studied." And in fact, I got lower grades because other kids studied because of the bell curve. If right, if if uh, if other kids hadn't studied, I'd have been doing better. Right, so so I'm just sort of pointing this out that now that you know that, you have to really take ownership for doing the opposite, which means talk about your feelings or talk about your lack of feelings. Step into the discomfort zone of doing the opposite of what was imprinted upon you. Okay, uh, I wanted to point out that um, uh, my father was also beaten blue uh, as a kid, and he chose not to ever raise a hand on his kids. So uh, he's an example of how, indeed, you could choose uh, not to repeat at least this bad pattern that he had as a child. Um, uh, although he was uh, amusing in a way. Right. Okay. Yeah. So now, again, you're making more excuses, right? I'm not saying no, no, you're a terrible father. No, I'm not saying making a moral excuse. No, no, because you're immediately going back to something that your father did that was good or better, right? But you see, as a child, that you didn't know anything about your father's history. All you knew that was that your father preferred to sit in his study and do who knows what rather than spend time with you, right? So the, the perspectives and the, the excuses and all of that, which we make up as adults, only serve the defensive needs of our parents. They do not serve the truth of our experience as a child. As a child, I did not know my mother had been in a, uh, around a war, in the war like fighting, and I didn't know any of that. And you as a child, at least I hope, didn't know that your father was beaten black and blue. The true and original experience of you as a child was that your father preferred to do almost anything than spend time with you. That's very painful. Now, as an adult... You can say, well, but he had this, that, and the, but it's not your experience as a child. And, and until you can connect with your emotional experience as a child, you can't communicate any of your adult emotional experiences because it's like trying to build a house on a cloud. It just falls through, right? You need your true childhood experiences authentically processed in order to be able to communicate your adult emotional experiences to others. And then if you make excuses for your parents, then you are denying your original experience of being ignored and or victimized to the, to the degree that it happened. And therefore, you are denying your own feelings. You're saying that your feelings are incorrect. And then it's no wonder why you then have trouble emotionally connecting to people, right? Okay. I... I Okay, I think I understand, and there's still, and the center still disconnect. So, uh, do you have exercises to propose, such as repeat, repeating to myself, uh, "I am fully responsible," and my parents were fully responsible both for their success, uh, not successes, whatever, good. Well, no, and let me just evil. ask. Look, no, no. I mean, let me, let me ask you this again. You're taking a very intellectual approach, which I understand. But yes. how did it feel to you as a child that your father was in his study all the time? 
I, I felt, uh, I, I don't know exactly, but I, I didn't feel good about it. I know. I know I felt uh, neglected or I felt uh, in need of help that was not coming. And uh, I felt, uh, um, I don't know, I felt deprived of, of something. I felt. Uh, these um, are, I appreciate what you're saying. None of these are feelings. What did you say? Sorry. None of the words that you used are feelings. I felt deprived or in need of help. Or these, these are these are not feelings. I don't know. I I don't know. I have there. There has been so much uh, uh, need uh, intellectual cover up on top of it. I, I know I was distressed somehow. No, I get it. Somehow, I get it. But... So let me let me ask you again. When your father would come home and go to his study, and you know that you wouldn't see him again for the rest of the night, how would you feel? Yes. Well, after some point, I would uh, I would not feel anything in particular because I was used to it. Uh, so, okay, let's talk about before you got used to it. That's that's going back so so long that I don't know. I I I don't even remember. All right, let's let's take like... another example. When you would be out in the world, and you would see yes. other children mm-hmm. playing with involved fathers. How would you feel? Maybe slightly jealous or something? Or... Don't say maybe. Don't say maybe because that means you're guessing. And I didn't ask you to guess at what you felt. I asked what you felt when you would see fathers playing with their sons at a playground or a play center or the park, laughing, rolling around, tickling, whatever was going on. How would you feel? I felt alien. Is that world? I felt like I was coming from a different world, or uh, not feeling. Felt... And again, I appreciate you struggling with this, and I, I really do. I mean, it's a challenge, right? Yeah. Because you're used to describing yourself as if you're outside yourself, right? It looks like yes. This, totally. Or I can analogize it this way, but that's not the same as being in your skin. You know, we don't deny feelings to rabbits, for God's sakes. <laughs> you know, the feelings that we have that are the most authentic are shared by the other mammals, right? And other mammals probably would not describe themselves if they could as being alienated, right? If a baby ape experienced paternal abandonment, how would that baby ape feel? Um, I don't have words for that, sorry. I don't have... Okay. Can I make some suggestions? I'm not trying to tell you, I'm not yes. trying to tell you yes. your experience, but I'll make some suggestions. Please. Uh, lonely. Yes. Sad. Slightly. Angry. Resentful. No. Frustrated. Yes. Okay. Did you say no to resentful? I I think I said. Uh, you say resentful. I don't remember you saying resentful. Uh, I I think you said something different. But that's okay. Uh, I don't think I was. I was too used to. Uh, as you say, I had lowered my standard, so I don't think I had resentment at that point. I had resentment later uh, on uh, on my father for other things at, at when I was twenty odd uh, until I came to to terms with my having been abused emotionally, um, and uh, but that, that's not when yeah the, seeing other people with their parents is not when I would be resentful. I would be resentful would be when I would discover some patterns of behavior from my father and 
later discovered that I had the same patterns and that could make me resentful to my father, both for uh, having this pattern. Sorry to interrupt. They, they do say that intellectualism is the toughest defense. I think it is. <laughs> can be true. How did you it feel is. after you were spanked by your mother? And particularly if your father was in the house. I would feel uh, hurt. I would feel abused. I would feel <laughs> uh, helpless. I would feel uh, yeah, helpless and and uh, antagonized by people who who should have loved me, and um, and so. Yes, I don't know. Uh, I didn't feel happy about it. Uh, well, and, I, I mean, I, I, re- I appreciate. Sorry, no, go ahead. Yes, did I resent my parents for that? Uh, to a point, I suppose yes. Um, uh, it's difficult. I, I have, I have so much uh, uh, riff reflexes against saying those things that I don't know I can't say anything precise or useful at this point sorry you say you have reflexes against saying those things yes against your feelings yes and why do you have resistance to that do you think Uh, I acquired that as as a defense mechanism as a kid well but whose needs does it serve for you to feel uncomfortable with those feelings? Uh, it's dysfunctional. I think it doesn't uh, serve any, anyone's needs. It, I think it's dysfunctional. Oh, come on, come on, come on. You're a smart guy. <laughs> I'm sorry I got to call you on that, right? Let me put it to you this way. Let yes. me put it to you this way. Yes. If somebody steals your car do they, and you, you get it back, do they want you to press charges or not? No. Okay, now what emotional state would you have to be in to not press charges? Um, have forgiven or or made, made excuse for the for my parents in this case, or for the thief or whatever. See, I knew you were a smart guy, right? <laughs> okay. So for you to not be angry or to not experience your childhood emotions, whose needs does it serve? Oh, my parents. Yes. Sure. Yeah, it's protecting it serves their from... needs in the way that patriotism serves the needs of the state, right? Yes. And that makes perfect Although, sense to do uh, with a child. Sure. Right? As a child, we don't. if we're harmed by our parents, we really don't want the risk of escalation. Better the devil you know than the devil you don't. And the risk of escalation historically or as a species was abandonment or death. So we, did not, we do not risk escalation as children. In other words, no, we don't say, Mommy, I hate being spanked. I don't want you to do it anymore. And we don't go online when we're 10, look up spanking and say, Mommy, spanking is shaving IQ points off me. And if I am spanked, <laughs> I am more likely to end up as a criminal. And if I'm spanked, I have less capacity to negotiate. I'm going to have more social anxiety. I'm going to have smaller brain, a smaller brain size and less empathy, so you need to stop doing it because it's, it's morally wrong because you told me not to hit people. Other children, you say, don't hit other children while I'm a child, so stop hitting me, and it's bad for me. You make me eat my vegetables, stop making me feel your hand. 
Yes. Now, what would have happened if you'd done that? Um, I would have uh, had an argument with my mother, and uh, at, at worst, uh, ended up being spanked more. But uh, uh, and what would that have told you about your mother? If you gave her facts, science, reason, and evidence about how bad spanking was, but she spanked you anyway, what would that tell you about your mother? That uh, she made the choice of not believing something and she's in error and that uh, she's done something wrong and morally wrong. And, uh... and she punished you for it. In other words, she didn't care about the truth. She didn't I think care she did about care about facts. We all care. No, because if you can make the effective case to your mom that spanking is objectively bad for you, and she cares I about truth, and she cares about you, then she would stop doing it immediately. Yeah. Right. Like so, there's this chemical called BPA, which people freak out about them being in baby bottles. They ban it like that. Video games might be bad for children. Limit your screen time. Boom. Right. I think that if so she had if believed make... me, she she would uh, she would have stopped it. The problem is that uh, it's uh, difficult to convince her or anyone of anything unless they want to be convinced. And, I get it. Uh, I get it. So what that means is that it was her prejudice and bigotries that mattered, not facts. Like so, she couldn't she couldn't say I spanked you because that's how you help children. I spanked you so that you would be a good child or I spanked you so that you would learn responsibility or I spanked you – like she would, she would have to say if you gave her the case when you were 10, you sent her to my video or you sent her to Alison Gopnik or Elizabeth Gershoff or whoever the spanking experts are, right? And you said, look, 19 out of 20 studies show a massively negativeness and massively negative results for spanking. Then if your mother was interested in truth – if your mother was interested in your welfare specifically, she would say, holy shit. Holy shit. I didn't realize that. I didn't realize that spanking had all of these negative effects. I must stop it immediately and apologize to you, and I need to take you to a specialist to find out if there's any way that we can reverse the brain and neurological damage that has resulted from spanking. You know, it's funny, you know, everybody's freaking out about the possibility that in football you might have uh, brain damage after 20 years of contact sports. Well, Jesus Christ, for 80 to 90% of American parents, at least parenting is a brutal contact sport. How about we deal with that as opposed to people who have 20-year NFL careers who have choices as adults? So what it means is that if your mother were to hear the case against spanking – Right, so when I put mm-hmm. this video out and, and put these interviews out, right, the bomb in the brain, the, the spanking, they've been viewed hundreds and hundreds of thousands of times. And, and they're, they're at a level that a reasonably intelligent 12-year-old can understand, right? How many emails yes. do you think I've gotten from 12-year-olds saying, I showed this to my parents, and my parents mm-hmm. said, oh my goodness, I had no idea, I'm so sorry, we are stopping right now. Did you get any email? Zero. Yeah. Okay. I'm not surprised. I mean, I, as far as I understand, I can imagine that some 12-year-old boys at least are online searching for the term spanking. <laughs> Hopefully, it will lead them to to this this presentation, right? But it doesn't happen, right? And why doesn't it happen? Right. It doesn't happen because 
parents say, I'm doing the right thing. I know about truth. I know about virtue. I know about honesty. I know about integrity, and I'm teaching you all those things. And then if children bring the case against spanking to their parents, and their parents, as you said, the case in your, with your mom, you might end up being spanked again, then the parents are openly revealing – the parents are openly revealing that they spank for, for, for against reason and evidence. And then the kid has to say, well, why the, why the hell do my parents want to hit me then? If they know it's bad for me, if the, the science is, is about as clear as you can get. I mean if there was some food that they were feeding me that had all of these negative effects, they'd stop feeding it to me, right? They say not too much sugar, not too much screen time. Be sure you get your sleep. Don't hit other children. And so if spanking has all of these negative effects but they still keep doing it, what does that say about my parents? And this information has been out for decades and decades. So what would it say about parents who continue to spank when they know that's immoral and bad for their children? I'm cut from the show. Hello. No. Oh, can you not hear me? Oh, no, no uh, you're back. Um, yes, so I, I, I agree with you. Uh, at the same time, well… Uh, no, no, uh, no. I asked you a question. <laughs> what would it mean about parents who continue to spank their children when the children have made the clear, rational, moral, and empirical case against spanking? They are not interested enough in the truth to find out and uh, go to the bottom of it. No, because the, parents, the kids have made the case. The kids have made the case. So if I said to my daughter, you need to eat this food because it's good for you, mm-hmm. and I force her to eat it, and then she shows me the scientific studies that say that it raises the chances of cancer, lowers intelligence, causes social problems, neurological problems, raises the risks of ischemic heart disease, and so on, and I said, too bad, you're going to fucking eat it anyway, what would that say about me as a parent? Uh, that you care more about your authority than about uh, the, the truth, that you're making a choice of uh, uh, against I'd your… Saying, I'd be saying I don't want facts to interfere with my sadism. Yes, I know. Uh, uh, let, 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 let me stop you just a minute because uh, stand, standard, it's hard to find a standard of proof that everyone can agree with. I mean if people would say, oh, the science says, well, uh, science says uh, – uh, official science says things about the climate that uh, are actually uh, quite uh, controversial. Or no, people I, look, say, I, understand, oh, look, I understand that. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. I understand that there's gray areas in science for sure. I get that. The American yes. Academy of Pediatrics says no spanking. Um, lots of doctors' groups say no spanking. The American Psychological Association says no spanking. 19 out of 20 studies find negative results. It's about as much of a consensus as you're ever going to get. This is not like climate science where like 51% of climate scientists think that it's real and man-made, right? Uh, and so that's sort of one example. The second thing is if there's a doubt, then surely you stop doing it, Right? If there's a doubt, let's say that, well, it's maybe only 80% true that spanking is going to cause IQ point losses and risks of future diseases and lack of social skills and oppositional defiant disorders and future probability of higher future probability of criminality. Let's say that the parents think, well, maybe it's only 50% likely to do that. 
well, <laughs> would, that, would that parent then say to you, well, you might as well smoke because like only a third of smokers die from smoking-related causes. No, we say to people, don't smoke because the risk is there. Right? So that's what we say to people in society. We say, if there's a risk, at least refrain from the behavior until you can sort it out more. Does that make sense? Yeah, but probably that, that sounds a, a bit too much like the, the so-called precautionary principle, which I think is bunk. Uh, sometimes you have to, to make choices in uh, Jesus in Christ, did you have to wear a helmet as a kid? No, not at all. Okay, it's now legal. Like, you have to wear a helmet as a kid now on a bike. What? You do. I oh. mean, here in Canada anyway, right? You have to wear a helmet as a kid okay. because that's a precautionary yes, principle. Yes, yes. Let me ask you this. Did you receive any inoculations or vaccinations as a child? I did. Okay. So is your mother comfortable with the precautionary principle? Mm, don't think she is. I don't know. Oh, come on. <laughs> come on. Stop at the defending. If you vaccinate a child, it's because you are being taking a precaution, right? Yeah, but that's very different from the so-called precautionary principle. But uh, yeah, taking precautions is good. And, <laughs> taking precautions uh, is different from the precautionary principle? Yeah, it's as uh, a precautionary principle. Is, you know uh, I'm now talking to your mom, right? <laughs> yes, I know. Uh, okay. okay, as long as you know. The, the precautionary principle is a, is a, is a theory uh, advanced by politicians to justify the, the fact that in, in the end the politicians must, uh, must take whatever, uh, have arbitrary power to... Uh, to prevent, no, it's, uh, I'm, I'm not saying this banking is like Pascal's wager, like you make the consequences so negative that you change the behavior even if the possibility is tiny. This is yes. not – I mean the link between spanking and dysfunction is far higher than the link between smoking and disease. And I, parents – I, 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 we I as a society don't say, well, yeah, smoking is great because it increases your concentration, because it helps you relax, because it gives you something to do with your hands, because it gives you a way to introduce yourself to strangers. Right, Steph, we, we don't Steph, say. Steph, that. I, I agree. I, I totally agree with you, and I think the evidence is in at least as far as I'm concerned. I'm convinced, and I'm not going to smack my my daughter. Uh, uh, my mother didn't see the evidence. Uh, she might have been convinced by the evidence or not. If she had, if she had seen it, I cannot make the hypothesis. The thing well, is, give it to her now. Uh, give it to her now and see how she reacts. Okay, I, I will. That's that's actually a very good. Uh, um, a very good, uh, very good point. I think I, I, will, <laughs> I will actually do that, uh, and um, I will see how she reacts. But um, okay, but good. I think that will also help get you in touch with some childhood emotions, right? Because uh, if I had unwittingly be doing something that was really bad for my daughter, yes, right. I mean, if 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 I had like if it's a parent, I had read no books on nutrition and knew nothing about nutrition at all. And I fed my daughter a steady diet of everything she wanted, like sugar and fat and all that kind of stuff. And that made her sick and harmed her development. I would feel like if I discovered that as an adult later on and it was too late to fix it or at least to prevent it from occurring, I'd feel like my heart was on an express elevator ride down to the center of the earth. And I don't know that I would ever sleep again. <laughs> right? And it's, it's fear. Partly it's fear of, of those – of making those mistakes as a parent that has me read all these parenting books and has me interview all these parenting experts and all that kind of stuff, right? 
Okay. And so if your mother finds out that information was available to her that she did not get, mm-hmm. that has resulted in uh, harm to you, mm-hmm. it will be instructive to see her response. Indeed. I think I, I, I will definitely try that. And I think that would be my strongest suggestion as to what to do for the next stage because uh, you're, in my opinion, you're, your personality and the alter egos of those who are around you as a child are all kind of mixed in and you're not aware when they move in and move out to defend themselves. So I think that yes. – I'm a big fan of internal family systems therapy. Uh, so you might want to look <laughs> okay. at something like that. Um, so it was, certainly was George very helpful Hellinger's, to me. Uh, yeah. No, okay. that's uh, Richard Schwartz. May the power Richard of the Schwartz, Schwartz be with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Dr. Richard Schwartz. He's actually been been on this show, and, and you can see Internal oh, Family Systems yeah. Therapy, his, his books, uh, all that. But listen, I'm going to move on to the last caller, uh, but I really, really thank do you appreciate your call. Thank you oh, very much, you're welcome. Steph. Thank you so much. Thank you so much time. Bye. No, don't, don't apologize. You did a great job. Uh, you know, it's my, uh, it's my choice uh, as to the length of the call, so don't apologize. <laughs> Remember, I am okay. 100% responsible for my choices. If uh, the call goes long... Uh, don't apologize to me. That's my choice. I'm going to hold on to that like grim death. So, But thank you so much for your courage okay. and, and um, you, persistence in the call. Thank you. And the last caller actually just dropped off. Let me try and add her back in. So she's still there. She wants to be added back. She, she knows that it was Sunday morning sausage fest, right? <laughs> and what, what she, is she, what, Hello? Is she going to wear? Are you there, Tess? Hello. Go ahead. Hi, I heard you I'm say you've Did you just fall asleep waiting I... for your turn? Is that is that what happened? <laughs> I'm sitting answer? here drinking a cup of tea, wondering if I'm ever going to get on, and then I hear you say last caller, and then I went to press the unmute button, and I pressed the hang up button. So that's the way things uh, work. Uh, no problem. Yes, it's well. Hello, anyway. Uh, hello to you. How are you doing? It's lovely, lovely to speak to you. I'm good. Um, so firstly, I just really want to say thanks for everything that you do. And I'm listening to you a lot and I love the way your brain works. So please just keep producing stuff because it gives us lots to think about. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. (laughs) Um, so I'm sorry to do this to you, but I want to speak about the resource based economy again. Please do. Um, (laughs) so it's been a bit of a crazy thing, uh, your little thing with Peter Joseph. And it's made me think about a lot of stuff. Obviously, hey, I don't and have I little just, things, man. I have. I don't have. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Go on. Um, so my main issue is obviously the fact that it won't be voluntary. So I can't get past any idea that forces people to do certain things, which seems to me quite reasonable, right? <laughs> That's the. You mean idea it's reasonable to be against other people wanting to initiate the use of force? <laughs> Yeah, okay, I, I just want to, you reasonable. had a whole cluster bomb of double negatives in there, so I just want to make sure. We're <laughs> Sorry. To the, okay. Yeah, we're on the same page. Um, Violations of the so, non-aggression principle, double plus on good. Okay. Okay, double plus, good. Um, so it seems to me that um, for the RBE to work, everybody in the world has to be involved because they have to pull all the resource, resources in an inventory of the globe and then figure out a way to safely distribute them because it seems that the people who um, believe this will work don't trust that the general public and the free market is able to efficiently and safely and responsibly use the resources that we have on the earth. So they've come up with this idea of the resource-based economy and everyone has to Sorry, let me just clarify that again for people who are jumping in late. So um, I don't require that all other podcasts in the world be shut down in order to claim that I'm successful as a podcaster, right? So I, I welcome competition 
from other podcasters. Uh, I welcome, you know, I've helped people set up their own podcast. I've helped them technically. I've given them advice. I've, I've actually sent and bought equipment for people who uh, I think uh, I sent a, a very expensive, expensive microphone to the wonderful Brett Bernard from School Sucks uh, Project. Uh, and so I'm very happy to help uh, other people. I've helped coach people on speeches and, and all that kind of stuff. So I don't require that other people not talk in order for people to listen to me. In fact, I want more people to get into podcasting so that they find my show and listen more. And so mm -hmm. the, if, if this is what I was trying to get to with the point uh, with the caller earlier is that if you have a more efficient way of doing things, the free market will adapt to that. If you have yeah. an algorithm or some sort of centralization that is more efficient than the free market. In other words, if you have a city which says you come here and you don't have to work – and you have another city which says, you come here, you have to work. Most people will kind of want to go to the city well, with exactly. no working. If it's and a we good know idea, that because there's lotteries, right? To do Sorry, it. If it's a good idea, you don't have to force anybody to do it. I mean, if, like you said, I can't figure out why if they've got such an amazing program or system that is going to serve us on new problems, why haven't they already put it out there and sold it to us in a voluntary way? Because if it's good, we'll do it for sure. But yeah, my if, they only... can produce, if they can produce a car for $10, they'll take over the car market. And, and if using yeah, that same yeah. technology, they can produce a tablet for a dollar, they'll take over the tablet market. And th yeah. there's nothing that stops them. If they have a more efficient way to produce and distribute things, they will get investment and they will produce those things. But the fact that they say we can't have money means that they believe that they cannot compete with a monetary system, that a monetary system will work, mm. will win every time. And that yeah. seems to well, be I such a fundamental insecurity. I think that they believe that it's um, not so much – I think they think that they need to get rid of the money thing so that without money, people's brains will be reconditioned into a more gentle way of trading or something, which I think you sort of pr pr um, promote the solution as being, you know, peaceful parenting and bringing up people in that way to, to sort of purify their minds again away from the sort of dog-eat-dog -dog environment. Um, and sorry, but, let me just sort so, of be clear about that. So if we just we just take one tiny aspect of the hyper-regulatory state or the growth of the state, which is that if everything else had remained constant, our tax had gone up, the national debt, the, 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 the military-industrial complex, the welfare state, you name it, right? Crappy public schools. If all of that had remained constant, but government regulations had remained at their 1948 levels, which was not like everything was unregulated at that point then Americans would be approximately uh, five times richer than they are now, four to five yeah. times richer. Uh, average income in America, I don't know, 30 or 40K, whatever it is, right? Right, yeah, so yeah. we're talking, you know, 150 to $200,000. Even if one tiny aspect of the state had remained relatively small, and we're not so, can you imagine if we'd had a full-on stateless society, people would be 10, 20, 30 times richer. And they barely yeah, need to work, <laughs> right? So if you want to have people not work and have tons of resources and so on, well, you just minimize the state and we'll just do fantastically. I mean, if yeah, all people no, had was 150 or $200,000 on average per year right now, I think they'd think that's pretty great. And that's just one tiny aspect of, of eliminating state power. But sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so that's definitely one way to get what we want, an environment where we don't have to work, which it seems that that's what these people really want. It's almost like they like they just complain that you have to work to, for a living and that you, know, you have to go out there and chop trees or grow food or whatever it is to survive on the planet. And the fact that we have to do that, I think they get frustrated at and they just want to will right away. Like, <laughs> and I think that I like – I'm sorry to interrupt. I like what you said. I mean, having met a bunch of zeitgeisters uh, online and in person – the idea of those noodle arms 
chopping away at trees and doing hard manual labor <laughs> just seems to me kind and of I, and uh, that's why i love what not... you said about I, I really think that what you were very brave in saying so and i love your courage with what things you talk about um when you yeah, um, identified them as people who um are like children and they just want to go back to that comfortable state where they are provided well for. sorry to be precise think... to be precise they're not uh, like children they are at least the argument goes. I'm not saying it's a final proof, but they are adult survivors of unprocessed childhood trauma. I mean, my my daughter is a child and she loves to work. I mean, when I go clean the toilets, she's like, I want to come help. I want to scrub. I want to, you know, all, all that. She loves to work. And she works very hard at, you know, putting right now at the moment, she's taking all of her um, colored scarves and uh, making the living room and dining room both beautiful and impossible um, because it's like this <laughs> massive kaleidoscopic LSD spider has crapped <laughs> its webs all over everything. Half the time I'm tripping over everything. But it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. And so she takes care of her toy kitties. She, I mean, she's working all the time. And so, yeah. so I think it is you know, unmet childhood needs carried over into adulthood. That uh, And you, you hope that you can create a future where those unmet childhood needs are going to be met and then you'll be happy. Yeah. But it's also unconscious yeah. that – anyway, so I just want to be – they're not like children um, <laughs> in, in that sense. But I wanted to, yeah. Children are not zeitgeistress. You know, my daughter is not, let's take all my toys, set up a central repository and distribute them to all the children in the neighborhood. <laughs> She's quite a, quite a little capitalist. She might trade them to you or loan them to you if you're really close. But uh, anyway, go ahead. Uh, good. Um, so basically, I'm just trying to exhaust any possibility of how this idea could possibly be something that is worth thinking about. And so I'm just thinking that, you know, the only way it could ever work is if um, force and initiating force and forcing people to be a part of it is okay. And the only case when this is okay from non-aggression principle is in self-defense. And so what I'm thinking of is that nature is our only dictator in life. You know, we're quite free to do whatever we want, but it's nature's laws that we have to comply to and bow to. It is our one limitation. And I think um, in this case, um, it's perhaps that they are using the idea that the environment is in such a bad shape that unless we all band together and figure out a way to, you know, protect ourselves from the possible destruction of the resources and therefore humanity, we need to, in self-defense, force people to use their resources better because they simply don't have the knowledge or they're ignorant or whatever it is right, that right. Um, we're just stuffing things up. Yeah. So it's kind of like self-defense forcing, you know, and then in a way it's nature that is actually initiating force on us, not each other that makes any sense no i think look i think that's that's a fine argument i mean i think that that if you could say that our existing system is going to lead to the destruction of humanity then without a doubt there could be reasons uh, and rational justifications for uh, uh, reacting to it in terms of self-defense right so yeah, and I, I, think I, can, that's what I can fully understand that i think that's what they a lot of them think i mean i i um uh, obviously, everyone loves their environment, but I mean, I feel like I've sort of come from a bit of an environmental activist past, and I'm pretty concerned about the environment's shape at the moment. I'm sure, like many people are, and I, um, they seem to be really, really concerned to the point where they think that it's worthwhile to, to have this system, and it's not just worthwhile, but it is essential that we, that we do this um, in order to protect ourselves from destruction. So. I, I think that well, might okay, be an but I mean, so but there's a couple of problems with that. I mean, just a few spring to mind, and I'm not going to say this is any kind of clincher, but there's, there's a couple of problems with the argument. First of all, you could say that about anything. 
religion is going to lead to the destruction of humanity. Therefore, yeah. we need to take kids away from religious parents. <laughs> exactly. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. What? What? Because it's a Advertising corrupts children to the point where they want things that are bad for the environment. Therefore, we need to restrict freedom of speech for advertisers. Yeah. I mean, if you create. Yeah. It's a Pascal's wager, basically. Like if you create enough yeah. of a disaster scenario, you can justify anything. So as a principle, the barrier of proof required for a disaster scenario where you're going to strip all human beings of their rights must be enormously high. Right? Yeah, <laughs> pretty dire straight. Does, does that make sense? Like, yeah. Enor- yeah, like oh my God, <laughs> the barrier of yeah, proof yeah. must be staggeringly high. Not oh, only exactly. that you have the correct diagnosis, but also that you have the correct cure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And also um, when it comes to environmental degradation due to, you know, technological advances or progress or whatever, you know, like um, who's to say how far we're willing to go in terms of what we sacrifice in the environment and pollution and stuff for the things that we get in return from progress. So we've already you know, come through history with sacrificing quite a lot of the environmental health, but it seems to have been worth it for certain things. And, well, hang and, on, hang you know, on, hang on. We'll going sorry, to- sorry to interrupt. But, but this argument mm-hmm. that somehow technology or the advancement of society has degraded the environment, uh, I think is not supportable historically. No, yeah, no, I really don't. That's not what I mean at all. I just mean that like when certain things of the environment, um, you know, might have been damaged slightly, there might be another another creation that's come along that um, that wouldn't have been able to come along unless that degradation had occurred. And that might even fix that environmental problem. So I'm not saying that it's always just in decline, but it's sort of like it's an opinion about what is worthwhile um, using with those resources. And so the computers, you know, if you were to have an inventory of all these resources and then how would you decide whether or not that person's invention, which would use this resource, is worthwhile and given all the other things that could be used for an invention or, or you know, do you know what I mean? <laughs> Does that make sense? No, I understand that. I mean, I, I sort of, I mean, I lived in the woods for like a year and a half panning for gold and like lived in a tent throughout winter and stuff. And nature's a total bitch, frankly. I mean, I'm glad to have a human <laughs> shield between myself and things like cholera and smallpox and polio and uh, wolves and you know things like that. <laughs> I mean, diphtheria is a pretty bad form of pollution, <laughs> right? I mean, well, yeah, smoke yeah. in your house because you can't get electricity. So smoke in your house that kills you of lung cancer when you're 35 is a pretty bad form of pollution. Uh, the pollution that is sort of negative to human health that is released by a power plant is far less than having everybody individually cut down trees and burn stuff in their house because they don't want to die of cold in the winter, right? So, I mean, I I don't really view the history of the world as us coming from the Garden of Eden and corrupting it with our Mm -hmm. infernal satanic mills and machines. I view uh, we have progressively improved our capacity to survive in nature. You know, a really bad form of pollution was the bubonic plague, right, (laughs) which Mm -hmm. killed like a third of all Europe. I mean, that's some pretty bad stuff right there. And the fact that we have water filters and water cleaners and and sanitary sewage systems and so on uh, means that uh, we don't drop dead of disease. I think that dentistry is is a wonderful (laughs) step forward in keeping the pollution of tooth bacteria uh, out out of your 
system, right? It could cause heart attacks and all that kind of stuff, right? So it's, it, I think there's been this progressive march forward. Now, there have been massive, massive problems, right? I mean, the governments are by far the biggest polluters. War is a massive mm-hmm. polluter. I mean, yeah. the amount of oil used in one day in Iraq and Afghanistan by the American military is equivalent to all of China, all of India with its billion people or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. So um, there is massive environmental destruction that occurs. But it seems to me that environment, environmentalists tend to focus on business, uh, businesses. And there's no business – I can't even think of any business or any industry – that produces mm-hmm. even one tenth of the amount of pollution produced by the envir- by the U.S. government. Just to pick one yeah. government. Well, at least. And so my, my sorry, my concern is that when, when people want to talk about improving the environment, if they start talking about the free market rather than the state, then I know yeah. it's just uh, what they call yeah, yeah. Uh, a watermelon, right? It's green on the outside, but it's red on the inside. It's just socialism in another guise. The moment they start talking about the free market and they say, "Well, well I'm concerned about the environment, therefore free market," uh, or whatever, right? Yeah. Then they're not looking at things empirically; they're just looking at things ideologically. Because if you were concerned about the environment and you looked at things from a fact-based standpoint, you'd say, well, first thing we need to do is get rid of governments, right? So anyway, go Yeah, ahead. no, definitely. And, and at least it'll get, at least the RBE will get rid of the pricing mechanism, you know, the fiat currency part of it, so that will help a bit. Oh, yeah. How much, um, how we, much conspicuous <laughs> consumption is provoked by fiat currency and inflation yeah, where people feel yeah. they have to buy more now? It's crazy. Yeah, but sorry, yeah. go ahead. Um, but environmentalism is so much about like, you know, the value that we place on our environment. It's a completely human opinion. You know, it's nothing, no such thing as the Earth's health in terms of from the Earth's point of view. I mean, I'm probably going to just put people out there going, ah, but like we. <laughs> it's all right. You're talking on the internet. That's going to happen. Trust me. <laughs> I mean, I, put, um, I do but, a thumbs you know, like up the in the video. I get six million emails saying, man, you should have used the other thumb. That's it's a satanic symbol in Zoroastrianism <laughs> or something. I mean, just yeah. Oh, um, how frustrating. Um, yeah. So you know, we only value oil now because we know what it can be used for, and we 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 ha- get frustrated that you know we're going out there and um, drilling through the Arctic because we value the way it looks or whatever. Like, or we understand that it's important for our climate. I don't know, but you know, it's, it seems to be that all these things are very. Um, they change throughout history depending on our knowledge and what we just what we feel like valuing at the time, and um, so it's in not really anything objective. I don't know if that's the right word to use. Um, but also another thing that frustrates me is that the resource-based economy idea and the whole Venus Project thing and everything—it's not an, a solution that would work at any point in time given any progressive civilization. It's like almost as though they think that. Now that technology has gotten to this amazing stage, it's going to work. And whereas before it couldn't. It's almost like, what socialists It's do. not a grey area. It's, it's a grey area. And it, the whole like progressive technology is a is, – it's not just um, – it's a scale of, of increase. You know, it's not like all of a sudden we've just got the, the exact answer we need and now we can do it. Now we can have socialism. You know, like – No, no, but see, this, but this is, this is what people who have irrational ideas – always do is they try to pro they try to piggyback on the back of rational ideas and then say well now with the spread of rational ideas my irrational ideas can work right so originally <laughs> right so originally socialism couldn't work because it was all agrarian and then when the industrial revolution happened there was a massive resurgence in interest in socialism and they say well now we have factories now we have industrial methods of production exactly 
socialism can work. And this is what Marx said very explicitly. He said, you cannot get communism from agrarianism. You have to go through the Industrial Revolution first. So they were saying, now we (laughs) have machines, socialism can work, right? And then, uh, you know, now we have fiat currency, socialism can work. Now we have computers, socialism can work. Like, it's all just nonsense. It doesn't doesn't work because it's irrational. It doesn't have anything to do, you know, like it's this old argument in computer science. You know, I want to, it's a, it's a, it's a, a joke, right? It says, I want a computer fast enough to break out of an infinite loop. It's like, I don't care how fast the processor is, you are not breaking out of 20 go to 10, 10 go to 20, right? It's not going to happen. Right. And so it yeah. doesn't work because it's irrational and more technology does not make irrational rational. Right. Exactly. I mean, more technology uh, doesn't. I want a computer that is advanced enough to make two and two into five. Well, no, that's <laughs> never ever and going when to we're happen. Talking, we're talking about such huge problems, like how to run the world better, how to have a better society. These are problems that need to be solved, like from the from first principles, like with philosophy. And you can't. So therefore, we have to come up with something that is an answer and is applicable at any point in time to any society that's living with whatever technological developments that they've got at the time, not just one that has computers or, you know, like the solution needs to be sound and fundamentally principle-wise, you know. What do, um, uh, yeah, and I agree with that. And yeah, So what do, just out of curiosity, if you follow the movement at all, I don't, but what do the Zeitgeisters say? about Bitcoin, because it seems to me that they should be enormously positive towards Bitcoin as a form of value exchange that's central, that's decentralized, right? They always want decentralized, yeah. uh, open source uh, mechanisms to replace existing fiat currency price systems. So they must be enormously positive towards Bitcoin, at least I would assume so. Well, to be honest, I haven't really, I don't really listen to much of their stuff. I mean, I I don't know. I've seen all the movies and I've been to a few meetings for Zeitgeisters, but I have not, haven't really gone down that road since Bitcoin, since I've really looked okay. at Bitcoin. So I don't know. Um, but you'd think, but I think it's, I don't think they would focus on that that much. I mean, um, I don't know. It still uses the whole idea of competition, which I think is one of those the fundamental things that they're against, is the fact that you have to compete with others around you and it's a win or, win or lose situation. They seem to think that anyone who has, someone else has to be without. So I think but that's, that's true for, I mean, you know, I, I assume you have – um, reproductive organs, and if some man uh, uses them, then they're well, I assume know? unavailable to all other men. And I assume that you say yes or no to that process based upon your level of attraction and interest in the man, and say no simultaneously, very selfishly, I might add, to the other three billion men on the planet. So uh, you know, unless they're willing to talk about the socialization of reproductive organs, it seems to me odd that they would have a problem with that, right? Uh, I mean, when I'm watching the Zeitgeist movies, I'm not watching all other documentaries. He wants yeah, me yeah, to watch yeah. the Zeitgeist movies, and by yeah. the very nature of that, I'm not watching all the other documentaries. So it just seems kind of odd that they want their system to win, uh, to spread, and yet they don't like competition. Um, competition. I just think that's kind of well, a contradiction. Right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, on on that topic of competition, I find that a really interesting thing to think about anyway because, I mean, I like the idea of when you speak about negotiation, I love your – definition of that where you know you both use your brains to come up with a solution that sometimes is even better and you both get what you want and more and I think when you can communicate that is so often the case that that's what happens and so if you have two people who can think a lot of the time competition doesn't end up being that dog eat dog type you know situation that the RBE people talk about um but then yeah and it's you you know know, just it's no no sorry finish your point sorry to interrupt 
Um, no, that's okay. You go. <laughs> You're ten. I just completely screw up your train of thoughts. I'm <laughs> sorry about that. Yep. <laughs> I thought I was adding, and it turns out I was subtracting. Um, well, because you know, people say, and this is not just particular for the Zeitgeist movement, but people say, uh, "Oh, yeah, you anarcho-capitalists, why don't you, uh, why don't you uh, put your system into place? You know, you tell us to put our system into place. Why don't you put your system into place?" And, I mean, the reality is I have put my system into place. I don't have anyone around me who advocates the use of violence. Uh, All of my interactions uh, with the people I choose in my life are voluntary, win-win, peaceful negotiations. It doesn't Mm -hmm. mean we don't get upset with each other. It doesn't mean we don't have disagreements. But that is the world that I'm putting in. And my entire career career is predicated on, uh, you know, uh, I'm going to put stuff out. People find value. They can choose to listen or not. But sorry, go ahead. Lucky for you, you don't have to come up with um, a whole program algorithm that can allocate resources for the whole entire world and tell everyone what to build. <laughs> so you just have to do your well, own life and I you're think done. That, and I appreciate done. that, but I, I do think that um, there are times in the process of implementing the non-aggression principle in your own life where you sure as hell don't feel too lucky and it would be a whole lot more fun to make documentaries about robot mommy Marxist cities. <laughs> so uh, it does really yeah, suck right. <laughs> at times. And it's like, oh man, really? Somebody else bites yeah, the dust? Rough. Oh, sad, right? You know, when you have the um, against me argument with people and so on. And But anyway, go ahead. I haven't had that argument yet, but I'm looking forward to it. Well, when you do, <laughs> we'll have another chat I, about... You know, I what, sort of yeah. have a very... Lovely life. I've had a fantastic childhood, and I'd love you to see if you can pick a hole in it. <laughs> but um, and I sort of feel now, <laughs> I feel quite under pressure now to you know do something great. Like, what am I supposed to do? Um, um. So that's an interesting point. But I also wanted to confirm you sort of have this idea that you bring up kids uh, in a sort of environment where they're not used to having authority. You know, or at least like authority that's not based on respect or you know, utility of that person having knowledge or something, um, then they will grow up and think the state is ridiculous. And I can really say that I just cannot get around, get my head around someone telling me what to do and that being okay. I find that so weird. So I think that was probably because I had a childhood of minimal authority. No, I think it's great. And, And, you know, maybe one day we can do a little show where you talk about that. You know, because I obviously want to provide that information to people. Of course, some of the people who call in are like, oh, childhood was tough and all that. I think that's, yeah. I think that's great. Uh, and actually, it was nice because I got a very positive sense of, you know, clarity and health, you know, from the moment you opened your mouth in the call, which is always really nice to hear. Oh, so, you know, congratulations nice. to your parents. I mean, that's, that's wonderful to hear. Actually, it's funny because, like, yeah, I've, I've been thinking about that my whole life. I like since I was like you know 18 maybe so like the later part thinking how lucky I am and I feel kind of bad about it like I have to be really appreciative and what is it you know about me that's so special I've had such an amazing life and it sort of put me down a little bit in a way and and listening to all your shows with all the childhood issues and I'm like oh I really want to learn about myself and I'm so eager to like learn more and find out about me and what might have happened when I was younger so I was like all right I want to see if there is anything that I don't know of and I spoke to my dad and I was like, um, I'm really close to my dad. He's amazing. He's really philosophical. Yeah, see, great see right away, you're kind of in a different category than most. I had an issue with my childhood. First thing I did was talk to my dad. You know, that's that's already an unusual enough situation. People are like, yeah, I'm like, well, maybe you should talk to your parents. I'm like, uh, maybe I will. Uh, I don't know. 
<laughs> and he actually said he like he straight away he's like actually yeah there is something that I can tell you and I, I wasn't sure if I was going to and um and he's just like well when I when um, I was I'm the fourth child I'm the youngest out of four and he yeah. said that my third sister so my uh, the last my third sister yeah she was a bit of a handful and so my parents decided they only wanted three and then when I came along um they were surprised obviously and then my dad took a while to get used to me and accept me. And so he said that for the first three years of my life, I was sort of unloved in a way. And he really felt it like it wasn't just subtle for him. It was like he really didn't connect with me. And he was I like, think, was he you know, kind of like resentful? Like, I thought we were done this whole phase and uh, we're not. Yeah. And I think also yeah. I sort of, I asked him, I said, well, did you, do you think that maybe you felt that way because you hated your job and you were stuck doing a job, you know, that you didn't like just to support your kids and already it was difficult. And then now you got to be in the long run for a bit longer. And, and um, he said, not really, but I don't know, maybe, I don't know if that's true. But also he was with my mum and they never really had an amazing relationship. Like it wasn't affectionate, but they never really fought in front of us much or anything like that. But they didn't have like a really lovely romantic relationship. And they but they divorced when I was 14 and they waited until I was that oh, age oh, to do come so. Come on. What are you doing so to me here? So now I'm coming out <laughs> wait, 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 Have wait, I had wait, a bad wait. child? Wait, wait, no, no. I didn't say you had a bad child then. Is, Steph, I just wish you could find some way to poke any holes in, in my family yeah. situation. While I was unloved for the first yeah. three years, my parents weren't affectionate and they divorced when I was 14. Hmm. I wonder yeah, if we right. might not. No, no. I think we have to keep looking. Did asteroids strike your house at any particular time? Did demons come yeah. out of your faucet when you turned the water on? Uh, any, you were stuck in one of those rooms like the garbage room in Star Wars where they crush everything up and you were only there with the robot who couldn't help you. Anyway. Well, yeah, no, and that's yeah, it's funny because like I I was thinking like is that classified as something that went wrong? I mean, but I feel like they did their complete best and they were fantastic, and it's just a shame that they didn't have a lovely romantic affectionate relationship. Um, and that happens, you know, you think you fall in love with someone and then you fall out of love, but you make do and do the best you can with what situation oh, you've got dear. and the best for you. Were you listening to the listening to the show earlier? Am I making excuses for my parents? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> well, I mean, gosh, that's a whole lot of conclusions, and what a terrible what a terrible belief to have. I mean, it, maybe it's mm-hmm. true. I don't know. I, I don't think it's true, but what a terrible belief that you might love someone enough to have you, you're the fourth, right? Yeah, the fourth. Yeah. Yeah. So you might love someone enough to date, get engaged to, get married, have four children, and then it just you know, like people in the backwoods of Arkansas get beamed up by space aliens. The love just goes away. Yeah. No, I, what do you mean? Like awful to That's think that could happen. Because you're going to fall in love with someone. I, maybe you already are. I don't know. But you're going to fall in love with someone. And if you believe that it might just vanish through nobody's fault, that's yeah. kind of anxiety provoking, isn't it? I'm yeah, not worried true. about my love with my wife vanishing tomorrow. Like I, I guarantee you <laughs> until we're dead, right? We're together. I mean – She's well, not going to wake up tomorrow, look at me, and me. say, like, you not... old bastard, I'm out of here, right? <laughs> like, I, I have no anxieties um, about that whatsoever. I don't think that my daughter I, is going to wake up tomorrow and say, you know, I really don't like you as a dad. You know, I've just, mm. you seemed okay, but you know what? Now that I'm over four, your jokes, I <laughs> I find them too immature. And, and we keep talking about babies all the time. Anyway, so, so, but if you have the idea that it can just vanish, 
I mean, isn't that kind of you're going to build a life? Maybe you're going to have kids with well, someone. No, the idea that it can just I, evaporate, like like it's not even sunny out, but the lake just evaporates. Yeah, but I don't think it evaporated. I just think that they weren't right, rightly matched to start with, and I can see why. Like I know them quite both quite well, and and could um, they not fix it? And did why did they not know that they were not? Yeah, right to be? what do you mean fix it to the point where they are rightly matched? You know, like, what do you mean? Well, yeah, I mean, because it's not, it's not like, uh, it's not like one of those Japanese game shows where you have to assume this weird Tetris-like position to get through something, right? <laughs> compatibility. I mean, in terms of compatibility, I don't think there's any virtuous person I'm not compatible with. Yeah, well, I don't know, maybe. No, I don't know. I have no idea. I don't know what was the problem there, but they managed to make it pleasant enough to bring up four kids. Hopefully, in a way that was okay, seemed from my and point of view. I'm not saying it didn't, but what I'm saying is that if you don't know why they, mm. right? Because you have a template of, well, we love each other, we're going to have four kids, but we're not really that affectionate, and then we're going to bust up, okay. right? Well, I can tell you what and, I th- I think actually. Yeah, go ahead. I remember what, yeah, why my mum and dad, yeah, weren't that close. I think after a while, I think my dad began to feel resentment towards my mum. Because he felt that he wasn't able to do anything in life that he really wanted to do because he was trapped in the family life, or not necessarily with his kids, but I think he felt that she was making all the decisions um, and he wasn't free to pursue his dreams, whatever they may be. So Wait, so wait, wait a minute. Did your mom, like, extract semen from him while he slept? Yeah, no, he was a bit of a bitch. And, <laughs> I mean, and oh my God, I mean, do not use that turkey baster. <laughs> No, no, sure. but and that's I mean, what he, I said he to made him. the choice, right? I mean, he made well, the choice, and definitely. you say you were a surprise. I mean, come on, there are sixteen different methods of birth control, uh, right? One of which is a giant picture of the Pope um, <laughs> in a leotard. But yeah. uh, you know, there well, are sixteen dead. methods of birth control, and so the idea that you were a surprise and an accident is not particularly credible, right? It's like saying I accidentally got a PhD, right? Yeah, no, no, like, um, yeah, that's fine. I'm not a, whatever. I'm sure that they realized the risks there that could I could have happened or could not have happened. But no, I said to my well, dad, with, like... with three already in the can, you know, we know that there's <laughs> fertility working. going on, right? It's not like I was 55. <laughs> I've been infertile for yeah, 20 yeah. years. And then, right? Yeah, uh, I know. This is, like, this I, is I a said fertile time. I said, um, you know, like, you were free to, to leave or whatever. You don't have to do anything and and you know you made the decision to let her you he's the one who's responsible for him feeling trapped because obviously he wasn't acting in a way to make himself feel like he was free and doing what he wanted so yeah well and then again just just from a i don't doesn't sound like you're a parent but i mean from a parent's perspective yeah there are times when you're doing stuff you don't want to do I mean, I'm not going to be sitting there crawling around a McDonald's play center when my daughter is 18. Or if I am, I hope somebody <laughs> calls the cops, right? Um, but there are times where you feel like decisions that you've made in the past are limiting your decisions in the present. And But, you know, you say, yeah, well, yeah. okay, but I mean, did I not know that going in? Did I not know that there was a risk of pregnancy? Did I not know that, uh, you know, I've, especially me with my annoying philosophy of, you know, be there for your kids and stay at home if you can. Did I not think that that was, you know, was that just for my listeners and not for me and all that? So there are times where you, you get shaken into, or I shouldn't say, it kind of creeps over you. You're like, have you ever been out? Mm-hmm. You're not cold. You're not cold. And then suddenly you're like, oh, what the hell? Why are there icicles in my bone marrow, right? <laughs> uh, and that's sort mm-hmm. of what it is sometimes with responsibility, right? Like you make these decisions, mm-hmm. you make these decisions, and suddenly you're like, oh, my God. 
I'm a victim. <laughs> I am. I'm a god. I mean, Subject I don't to your choices, all want to yeah. be. Yeah, but but then you say, okay, well, each of these choices I made, you just have to sort of shake your head and get the cobwebs yeah. out, right? Uh, and uh, but but everything it sounds like your dad, uh, you know, he he chose to have uh, kids, he chose to be uh, a father, and you know, three years is a long time to to be cold to a kid who you chose to have born, right? I mean, given up for adoption yeah. or whatever, right? I mean, I'm glad they didn't. Sounds like they were pretty good parents in a lot of ways, but. If if you decide – the other thing that happens too is there is a division of labor in marriage, right? I've got a whole podcast about this. I don't know if it's ever going to see the light of day. I might have to re-record it. But um, there, there's a division of labor in marriage. That's one of the reasons why marriage is so effective and so efficient, right? Mm-hmm. So you know, my wife has stuff that she's really good at and that she does. And there's stuff that I'm really good at that I do. We're still trying to figure out what yeah. that is. But I, I promise you <laughs> next year I'm going to come up with something uh, maybe other than adding to her list of, of needs, right? But there's things that I do and there's things that she does. And we're, mm-hmm. you know, that division of labor is really great. It's one of the reasons why people who are well, married make more money. That's they don't be. have to do it's perfect. Yeah, they don't have to do everything themselves. But what happens mm-hmm. is the division of labor is giving up choice. To someone else, mm-hmm. right? So if my wife runs the finances, then she says yes or no to stuff, right? And we can talk about it or whatever, right? But but that's the way that it works, right? And so then yeah. if you get the advantages of the division of labor, which is the removal of choice, right? Like, I mean, if, if I go and work in a factory, I don't determine the market strategy if I'm working on the floor, right? I don't, I, mm-hmm. I'm not dealing with sales and marketing strategy. Someone else is doing that. Right. And so when you yeah. specialize, you give up choice. You know, I go to my dentist oh, and my dentist right, says, I right. need to do X. I'm like, well, okay. <laughs> I'm not going to go become no a dentist and figure to, out it, I have no desire to invent an iPhone. So I'm sure glad someone's going to do that shit for me. Yeah, exactly. And, <laughs> and you may, there may be some things you don't like about the iPhone, but you have an iPhone. Right. Yeah. And so, so in a marriage, what happens is, I think in good marriages, there has to be this division of labor. Like the people who hang on to duplicating everything. I do my dishes, you do your dishes. I do my socks, you do your socks. I vacuum my half of the bedroom. It's inefficient. Your yeah. half. It's just a lack of trust and it's just ridiculous. Mm-hmm. It just adds yeah. to your labor and complications rather than uh, just figuring out who's better at what. And then, yeah. But what happens is you give up all of this authority and this choice in your marriage, right? In the same way that you give up marketing strategies when you work on the floor of a factory. And mm-hmm. uh, what happens then is that sometimes – you feel like you've given up too much power and authority. You don't look at the division of labor that's making you so much more effective and efficient as a human being, and you just look at what you've lost. And this is what happens with, you know, factory workers have this too, right? Like they they forget that somebody else built the factory and gave them the machine and is out there selling stuff, and they say, well, you know, we're selling these widgets for 10 bucks, and I'm only getting 5 bucks, Right, and they they don't look at the division of labor and what they're paying for to get the five bucks, or whatever. Right, mm. and so the same thing can happen in a marriage where you say, "Well, I used to make some of these decisions for myself, and now my wife is making those decisions." Right, and and the wife yeah. may feel that about the husband uh, too. And mm-hmm. but so they're you both just have like to, I mean, sacrificing, but they're forgetting to see what they're gaining from the relationship in terms of outsourcing certain things. Is that what you mean? Yeah, like I might want to buy something, and my wife says, "Well, I don't really think that's a good thing we can do right now." Mm-hmm. Yeah, my 80th tablet. No, I need another one, <laughs> right? But, um, <laughs> but uh, and I do. I use them all. I really do. <laughs> why? Why do we have another <laughs> headphone in the house? Why? 
why do we need faster internet? Anyway, but uh, so I may sort of say, well, I want to buy X, right? And she may say, well, you know, like so with my video camera is like the one I use for my show is like, I don't know, six, five or six years old. And the, the picture wasn't very good and I wasn't satisfied with a lot of post-production and all that. I'm like, oh, I got to go out a new $2,000 video camera. It's for the show, man. And she's like, well, I don't know. But she, you but know, she trusts you that you've got that down pat and that you understand. Well, no, you know. no, no, because she no. runs the finances. Okay. Right. So you have to now maybe I can make a business case. What you need. You have to, yes, you have to but, present a case. But she said what she said was she said well if it's absolutely necessary. Well, first of all, it's not absolutely necessary. You already have a camera, and you have three webcams. I'm like, yeah, but. But they're different, right? And, and you also have a tablet that takes video. Yeah, but it doesn't do high definition. Anyway, so um, so she says, look, uh, if if it's if you feel it's absolutely necessary, but have you explored all the other alternatives, right? And mm-hmm. she, I hadn't. So uh, I drove down to a camera store with the camera, and I said, here's. I show them my video, and I said, here's my problem. I look kind of flat. I look like a a two-dimensional Pillsbury Doughboy rather than a richly three-dimensional Pillsbury Doughboy. And they said, oh, you need to do X, Y, and Z with your lighting and this blah, 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 right? So we, boom, yeah. Mike was over. We experimented with it, and we found, yeah, wow, this looks a lot better. Saved 2000 bucks plus tax. you hadn't made – like, you know, if I were her, I would have assumed that you know what you're talking about, and I would have just been like, oh, okay, well, if you think you need it. You're the expert in that realm. I'm not going to say that you haven't done your research because I wouldn't have a clue. So it's like she had to babysit you through that process. Like I would have thought well, that she see, wouldn't have to do that's, that. <laughs> that's a pretty provocative way of putting it. She asked me a rational question, which is, is there any conceivable way that you can get the existing camera to work? Now, I had well, tried all the settings. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. <laughs> okay. I had tried all the settings on the camera, and, and it's really boring stuff because you know, you've got to do the oh, change the setting, film it put it back, tried to pro, pro, it takes forever, right? So I had tried all the settings. I had not imagined that if I, we had to turn off one of the lights, right? And, and they said, if you turn mm-hmm. off this light over here, you'll get richer shadows and blah, 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 right? Okay. I had, I mean, I just, I didn't know. And I didn't know that yeah. I didn't know. I wasn't like, well, I could change the lights, but screw that. They're hot, <laughs> right? But so she, I just didn't. But Christina pointed out to you that, you know, you might be better off going to seek some expert advice. <laughs> is that what, right. in the way, now, is that how she helped you? Men, electronics, and expert advice. <laughs> uh, you know, she must just tell me, put my testicles in blender and hit frappe, right? Because, you know, as a guy, you're like, well, what do you mean? It's like hiring someone to put my stereo together. I can't do that. Okay. <laughs> but uh, anyway, look, I take some pride in my technical expertise and blah, 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 blah. Anyway, so so it turned out that she was right. We saved 22000 bucks plus tax, and uh, I think the videos look better, and uh, I also get to save a bit of electricity because I'm not having to have all the lights on. So, well, so that's a happy ending. So, I'm glad. So the fact that she said no, was that a limitation? Well, not that she said no, but the fact that she said she gave me pushback on the camera purchase, well, that no, made sense. I mean, I'm, I'm yeah. grateful that she did that. That's the division of yeah. labor uh, and all of that. Whereas if I'd have been in charge of the finances, I would have said, well, I've, I've tried everything I know. And I've, oh, I would have said, I've tried everything. I just need a better camera. This thing's too old. Because that's the way it is with other, other technology, right? If your computer's too mm-hmm. slow, generally, it's just a whole lot cheaper to get a new computer than it is to start upgrading bits, right? Because you don't know which is the bottleneck and you might get not fast enough memory, but a faster processor or not fast enough bus, but too slow a memory. So just get a whole new thing. That's usually the way to go. And plus they're so cheap these days. So, so what I'm pointing out is that there is an example where the division of labor and her being in charge of something was hugely efficient. And, you know, I was very grateful 
uh, to her. And so well, I bought like myself a $2,000 massage with gold flakes to show her exactly <laughs> how in charge I was. Sorry, you were going to say? <laughs> I just said the more opinions, you know, that people give forth, if you're good at communicating with each other and it's not conflicting, then it's obviously, you know, a better situation. You get different perspectives. So that's always yeah. a good thing. Yeah. yeah. So I just want to sort of point out that um, – uh, if you're feeling trapped by the division of labor, you might want to revisit your economics because usually being trapped by the division of but labor. Not, I don't get I don't to make any marketing how... decisions as a factory worker, but yeah, it's good, right? But I'm not sure how, like, to be honest, how that actually relates to what I was talking about before. I'm not sure in what way would I be constrained from the division of labor. What do you mean? No, but like, you were saying in... that your father felt that your mother was making all the decisions, right? Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, well, I think... It's more so that he had dreams of how his life might work out and, like, you know, I think he wanted to be an astronaut or something and then he ended up being an engineer but in a job that he felt trapped in that he wasn't really doing what he wanted to do and that was because he was in a family. So I think that in that way and his, my mum So then of, the problem wasn't your wife. Sorry, yeah, the problem really wasn't understand. his wife. The problem was his fertility yeah. and his choices, right? <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't really understand in what ways my mum dominated him because for me that. I don't get why you wouldn't just stand up for yourself, so it doesn't make sense to me much either. But um, Well, and I can tell you as well that I don't get any sense of dominance from you. And if your mom was like this harridan who bossed everyone around, I'm sure that you and I would have had a sharper <laughs> intersection of opinions in this conversation, right? <laughs> Yeah, I th- yeah, exactly. Yeah, that sounds pretty. But it's worth it's worth ex- it's worth exploring. I mean, if if I were to some make be so bold as to make this suggestion, which is all just nonsense, right? But I think it's really worth exploring figuring out what happened with your parents' marriage, uh, because because that is your template, like it or not, yeah, right? Yeah. And you sure yeah. as heck don't want to, uh, you know, if you can avoid it, you know, the till death do you part thing is pretty sweet, right? Because I mean, yeah. I can't even imagine. I'm 47 years old. The idea of going out and dating. Dear Lord, yeah. I mean, I'd rather pull out my own <laughs> spleen with a ball peen. <laughs> uh, and so um, that I think is, um, uh, if you can do the death till you part thing, yeah, I think it's I think Well, it's if great. I can I mean, find someone who it's worth that, that will be a miracle. <laughs> right, but then you need to figure think... out, hopefully not a miracle, but then you need to figure <laughs> out what happened with your parents' marriage so that it, the same undertow doesn't happen. Because then the likelihood is, as you yeah. know, that you're going to yeah. choose someone like your dad, right? And the fantasy yeah. of the alternate life, like I can understand that. I really can. I really can. There's a, there's a great Woody Allen film. I mean, okay, he's kind of creepy as a human being, but there's a good Woody Allen film where the guy who's a single guy who's dating all the time is looking at the guy with wife and kids and totally envious. And the guy with wife and kids is looking at the single guy who's dating all the time and is totally <laughs> envious yeah. and so on. There is a kind of grass is greener and an alternate history wherein – you feel like you could have had this great life except for, right? But what, yeah. what happens is to, to, to sustain that fantasy, you have to strip yourself of moral ownership and of will ownership of mm-hmm. your own life, right? Yeah. And you have to um, then believe that you can be resentful because things were done unto you. You have to abandon the responsibility for your own choices in order to feel like a victim. Like there's things that were victimized by other people, which we didn't choose, you know, taxation or whatever, right? But as far as our own life choices go, it's really hard to feel victimized unless you say stuff was done unto me. Now, when you say stuff was done unto you, the tragedy is, particularly for those around you, is you have to find a scapegoat, right? Mm-hmm. But you can and just have regret like- based on your own decisions, though, can't you? Like you can just 
be anxious throughout your whole life that, you know, you want to make the right decisions and make the best out of life and the time that you've got. And then that fear itself makes you constantly reflect on decisions you've made and possibly have a lot of regrets. And that would be not, that's not um, being a victim. That's just having regret. Is that a different thing or? Well, the difference is blame, right? Um, Yeah, well, you know, regret, you're blaming yourself, right? Well, I don't know that regret means blaming yourself. I mean, I regret that I lost a whole bunch of bitcoins, but, you know. (laughs) <laughs> what can I do? I mean, you know, I'm going to blame myself. I mean, what, what, what would the point of that But you talking about a life be? that could have been, a life that, you know, you, you know, an alternative life where everything would have been better if, if in, that, in terms of that, you have regrets about the decisions you've made because you think that you should have, you could have made something, another decision that would have led a di- down a different path and that would have been amazing. Okay, but the, quest, but the question is why, why wouldn't someone make that decision, right? If your father had been an astronaut, would he have had four kids? Um, yeah, I don't know. Probably not. <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah, right. And certainly, I mean, the astronauts, uh, if you sort of follow what happened to the astronauts, I can't even believe I know this. It's just something stupid I read. The lives of the astronauts uh, and, and their marriages were just catastrophic. I mean, astronauts in particular, yeah. their marriages just completely crumbled, right? Because fame is a toxic, uh, <laughs> a toxic and corrosive thing in modern society. Uh, and mm-hmm. uh, this is why I try and stay as far away from it as humanly possible, uh, given what I do. But uh, it, is, yeah. uh, it is very toxic. So, I mean, there would have been advantages for sure. And there would have been disadvantages, right? I mean, I, I can look at my bookshelf and say, uh, I was writing at least a book a year before I had my daughter. I've written like one half of one book since. So I could look at my bookshelf and say four and a half empty yeah. spaces on the bookshelf. Or but then you look I can at your look daughter at my daughter and you – Right. <laughs> it's yeah. like, well, what would I rather have? You know, those, yeah. those no, you know, exactly. books aren't going to hold my hand when I go into the great beyond. Uh, so yeah. um, I think it's better and to have I, the people and stuff. He, he loves us to death. You know, he says – he always says we're the best thing that's ever happened to me in his life. So um, – but then that, to so me, that should that give him some perspective itself. on his life choices, right? If you're the best thing that's ever happened to him, then being an astronaut is like, well, I could have been an astronaut, but then I wouldn't have had this very best thing. Like it's literally like yeah. saying winning that lottery was the best thing that ever happened to me, but I could have taken that five bucks and bought two candy bars. <laughs> and so I am yeah, totally okay. short two candy bars, man. God, those yeah. candy bars would have been the best candy bars ever, right? If yeah, you are the best thing that ever happened to him, then the choices he made were the right choices. Good. Yeah, no, yeah. Yeah, that yeah, makes sense. Um, anyway, boring topic, <laughs> my dad. I personally don't think um, so, but that's boring I just don't find there's any – I honestly, I think so much. My brain doesn't stop and it's frustrating and I sort of – I talk to my dad a lot about stuff. I have a question about that sort of stuff and I just don't really know what more to – what what more stones there are to turn over? <laughs> Maybe there are more. Who knows? Um, I mean, but I anyway, think, I'm really enjoying chatting with you. Can we chat about um, I've got just a few minutes. How much time uh, do you have? Because I'm, I'm oh. hungry. Um, just a few minutes. What have you been going? An hour? Week three hours and 15 um, so far? <laughs> okay. Well, um, I um, – uh, yeah, good job. Well done. Um, <laughs> it's a long time. Um, I want you to talk about the Miko system, and my question is – what does it mean to be yourself? Well, I think it I... means to be in, in balance with competing resources. You know, like an, an economy is generally it aims to be in balance, but there's always disruptive things happening, right? 
uh, like the balance between supply and demand tends to even out. But then, you know, according to Say's law, supply creates its own demand. So the demand for telephones was kind of evening out. And then someone comes along with a cell phone and that changes a whole bunch of things and so on, right? So I think we aim for some sort of equilibrium with the various parts and competing uh, aspects of ourselves. And yeah. we, we recognize that that changes over time. When I was younger, yeah. I wanted to know what I wanted to do with my life. Now I know what I'm going to be doing for the rest of my life. So, uh, yeah. so there's things that will, will change, but I think we want to listen to all of our competing selves. And some of those selves come from our history. I have the inner mom alter ego. Ah! I'm sorry. I have the inner dad <laughs> alter ego, uh, siblings, uh, friends, um, people from my past, teachers, and so on. But I also have my future self, right? I mean mm-hmm. – I don't want to get fat because my future self would like to have knees that don't hurt and a back that doesn't hurt and stuff like that, right? So so balancing sort of between present and future wants and needs and so on, um, there's times where it's important to say uh, – to negotiate a yes with my daughter. There's times where it's important to get, negotiate a no and so all that kind of stuff. So all of that, yeah. that balancing, I think we just kind of want it in equilibrium and we want to keep listening to the parts of ourselves that can see – the future that can see deeply into yeah. other people uh, and make sure everyone has a seat at the table and everything is <laughs> yeah. negotiated because every every aspect of herself has this impulse for domination, uh, I yeah. think, at least based on our histories where so much – maybe not with you, <laughs> but a lot of people. And I think we want to keep listening to ourselves, try and be in equilibrium, and I think peace comes when everyone feels heard. I think that's mm-hmm. generally true in life as a whole. Uh, if I If I'm – Having a conflict with my daughter, it's because she doesn't feel hurt or because I don't feel hurt because she's not listening to me. There's a great relaxation in feeling hurt, which doesn't mean that people agree with you. But this is why I try to sort of repeat back to people what I think they're saying to make sure I've got it right because I want people on the mm-hmm. show to feel uh, what it's like to really be listened to and then viciously disagreed with them <laughs> to, be, to be listened to. <laughs> Uh, because if you listen to, there's a great relaxation of tension. And then usually if you listen to all the parts of yourself, then they will generally be behind whatever consensus can be hammered out. Uh, but yeah, if there's yeah. parts that you just, well, I don't listen to you or you're wrong or whatever it is, right? I mean, I had a habit and understanding of, where each of the parts with not listening from. to my mom alter ego. But my mom alter ego is very, very helpful in figuring out people who are like my mom. Anyway, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Well, understanding where all those aspects come from. So you understand really why, where all the layers that you've accumulated along the way in your experiences, where they all come from and how they make up who you are today. And then I think also to add to what you say, having all those different aspects of yourself and then doing something cool with them and being putting that out there on the table of the world and being proud of it and sort of that being you're being yourself, you know, being proud of everything that you are and understanding everything that makes you you and doing something unique um, with yes, that. I think that's important. Yeah. And the only way to do something unique is to not self-attack, right? And mm-hmm. one of the great yeah. blessings, if I can put it that way, one of the great blessings – of having a good relationship with your alter egos is that you don't self-attack. And Mm -hmm. so much of what you do in the world is you putting stuff out there and then people trying to provoke you into self-attack. I mean, that's just tragically, that's just where the species is right now. That people just try to provoke you into attacking yourself. And if you have that relationship with yourself where self-attack is an option, it's very hard Mm. to get anything sustainably good done in the world because it just keeps accumulating. Yeah, you condemn yourself. Well, and even if you can shrug off one people or 10 people or 100 people at some number, you know, like that Coney guy, Mm -hmm. you're going to end up masturbating in a street corner while psychotic. 
right? Because at <laughs> some point, you know, like, oh, a little bit of breeze is fine. Oh, a little bit more breeze is fine. Oh, a little bit more wind is fine. Oh, my God, a hurricane is blowing a Volvo through my head, right? <laughs> so that's not uh, good. So you have to have deactivated self-attack in order to do something really of value. And that doesn't mean self-criticism, it does, but self-attack is not, right? So like the, uh, the guy earlier today, right, uh, in the call, uh, he was saying, well, your perspective is tragically limited and I'm worried for you and this and that. So he's just trying to provoke self-anxiety or self-attack, right? And mm-hmm. I mean, that doesn't work on me because yeah. I don't have a, like, I don't need to attack myself because I'm going to listen to my self-criticisms, right? So attack occurs when someone is not listened to, at least in the, in the um, internal system. It's not always the case externally. But attack happens when, yeah. when you're not listening. Now, because the parts of myself that are critical of myself, which I value, because they, uh, because I will listen to them, they don't need to, uh, to attack me, right? Oh, and, of course, people attack others because they, they feel want. that self-attack themselves and they need to displace it and blah, 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 blah. But does that sort of make any mm-hmm. sense? Yeah, yeah, that really does, definitely. Um, so thanks so much. It's been really fun. I'm really happy I got to talk to you finally. It's funny, like oh, it's a, a like, real pleasure to your voice, but you're actually answering back to me rather than me just. <laughs> if if that happens with the constantly. podcast, please call me. <laughs> that means I need to upgrade that for everyone. That would be Lock pretty cool. <laughs> no, I appreciate that. Thanks for call. Uh, it, it was a real pleasure. Of course, you're welcome to chat anytime. And um, oh, awesome. um, best of luck finding. Uh, the, the person of your dreams. Um, you certainly uh, uh, deserve. I, so I can't I wait to be a mom. Can't wait to be <laughs> a mom. Be, that is where I'm going to shine. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Mill. Thanks, okay. Mike, again for um, hosting the show. Uh, thank you for you, my dear delectable listeners, who I would like to house in a gingerbread castle and eat. Please listen to Schiff. The Peter Schiff Show, well, I mean, listen to it in general, not to the exclusion of me, for God's sakes. But um, Schiff Radio of 10th, 11th, and 12th of December, I will be uh, hosting. Thank you so much for your listenership. I hope that you will share the video that I just put out, even if you're not particularly interested in Bitcoins. I think it's really important to understand at least my arguments, and you know, they're mostly arguments I've cribbed from other people, but the true value of Bitcoin what you really need to know, which was published on 29th November. I hope that you will uh, uh, share that because I think it's really important for people to understand bitcoins um, for reasons that I explain in the video. So I hope that you will uh, you will check that out. So have a wonderful week. Thank you again to all the callers uh, for calling in and um, I will talk to you soon.